Welcome, everyone, to episode two of season three of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shrouth. Thank you to our top Patreon subscriber, Darren Monk, and to all the other Patreons, Adam Hahn, Christine Belchel, Isaac Rennert, Andrew Darby, Cody Wilson, Ben Rothenberg, Patrick Friel, Jeremy Horwitz, Dargan Ware, Joe Graziak, Anthony Garino, Adam Villani, Peter Broda, David Croisson, Mike Jesiorski, Tim Robert Gomez, Rene Carignan, the Soccer Thread Podcast, and our newest, Nick Salliers. And to anyone listening, your name could go here. You can sign up at patreon.com slash recreational thinking if you are so inclined. Our guests today are Henry Stringer, Akiva Fox, and Nathan Chrissy. I hope I pronounced all those correctly. All right. And remember that order, it's arbitrary, but it will be consistent throughout the game. So if we could start off each of you going in that order, briefly state where you're zooming from and approximately one sentence about yourself, starting with Henry. Okay. Hi, I'm Henry. I am a college student from Rochester, New York. I go to school at SUNY Potsdam. And I guess an interesting fact about me is that I can juggle. So there we go. Oh, nice. All right, Akiva. Uh, my name is Akiva Fox. I can also juggle, but I don't think that is relevant to the question right now. I am joining you from beautiful Durham, North Carolina, and I have a small theater company here. Oh, cool. The ability to do party tricks may be more relevant to this episode than you, you think right now. <laughs> this is an audio podcast. Right? <laughs> All right, Nathan. I am Nathan Chrissy. I am Zooming from the Woodlands, Texas, just north of Houston. And I sincerely hope my children are asleep. All right. Regular listeners for this podcast will recognize that as the suburbs from the Arcade Fire album of that name. All right. So this game is in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. The first round I call the three R's round. It allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle prior material. These questions mostly serve as a warm-up in scare quotes, not in the sense of being easy, but just sort of throwing you in at the deep end, getting your mind working, getting you used to my question style. And they'll also be worth a tenth of a point as tiebreakers if necessary. So for this round only, you will answer as individuals at all times. If the first person the question is directed at misses, it'll go to the second, then the third if the first two miss. So the further back you are, the less of a direct shot you have, but the more time you have to think and some potential answers could get taken off the table. And we'll rotate to each of you gets to answer three questions in first position, three in second, three in third. I'll explain the rules for the next three rounds after this one is over. Also remind you about a relatively new rule, the quote unquote Jimmy Lee rule, basically saying that you're not really allowed to pass and not give an answer to a question unless you give an explanation of why you don't want to give a guess to show you put some thought into it. Basically just to encourage people, there's no penalty for guessing. So it's just kind of to encourage people to, you know, if they have something in their mind, or even if, you know, they, they don't have anything in their mind, but they can fabricate something within the category of potential answers, just, you know, put it out there. And yeah, the content of the podcast is you talking through your thinking process. So don't internalize your thinking. Feel free to share any interesting connections or thoughts you have, but you don't have to talk just for the sake of talking. It'll be long enough without any filler. And I will be copying and pasting the text of each question into chat so you don't have to just go off of your memory. All right. So if we're all ready, I'll start with Henry in first position on the first question. Okay. I've asked at least two questions on this podcast previously about the star Procyon. But I only recently learned that Procyon is also the name of a genus containing three extant species, two of which are commonly known by the adjectives crab-eating and cozumel. The third usually doesn't have an attached adjective unless you're deliberately distinguishing it from the others. So how do we generally refer to animals in this genus, particularly Procyon lotor? In other words, what's the common name, not the scientific name? So... <laughs> I'm particularly happy that I spent the time beforehand to read Yogesh's log because this came up in a recent post 
as far as I can remember, Procyon is the name for the raccoon. Yeah, that's my answer. Okay, yeah. So no suspense there. That is correct. I think Procyon literally means, pro means before, Sion is like the root meaning dog. So like before dog, which I guess I can see how that would refer to a raccoon. But yeah, Procyon Lotor, usually just called the raccoon. If you want to differentiate it, you can call it common raccoon or I guess northern raccoon. North American raccoon, something like that. It's not as fun a name as crabby raccoon or Cozumel raccoon, but it is the correct answer. All right, Akiva in first position on this question. I also only recently learned that my current city of residence, Vancouver, Washington, is the headquarters of, or contains the headquarters of what company that owns the brands Bowflex, Modern Movement, Schwinn, Octane, and Universal? Its name derives from a machine invented by Arthur Jones that Jones originally dubbed the Blue Monster. So clearly this is some kind of exercise company. It's kind of a bicycle, Bowflex, I think we've all seen the infomercials. Jones originally dubbed the Blue Monster. Oof. Hmm. Well, I don't think it's... Yeah, I don't know. I suppose I have to give an answer, though. That's the law. Yeah, yes. Peloton, even though that is wrong. Okay, but I mean, it's in the right family of things, so at least you you came up with a plausible guess. I'll pass this to Nathan. Yeah, I also don't immediately know the name of the company. It is clearly fitness-based, and I know of a big exercise equipment that's called the Functional Trainer, so I will go with Functional Fitness. Okay. I don't know if I'm familiar with that. It, maybe it rings a vague bell, but... Yeah, good guess, but not correct. So, fast to Henry. Okay, so Akiva has exhausted the fitness company that I am aware of. Drives from machine about the blue monster. Okay, so we could go with generic, generic sort of fitness machines. We have treadmills. We have ellipticals. What company? I mean, elliptical. I mean, that seems like something you know. You could have like elliptical movement. That seems sort of like a, one of your run-of-the-mill gym, perhaps. Let's see, name drive machine, but Blue Monster. I don't have any better guesses. <laughs> we'll go. We'll go with elliptical. All right. Yeah. So this is a, a machine. I think it was also. I mean, there, there are. I've definitely seen them in in gyms before over the past few decades. But there are so many people don't always remember the names for things. But I think once I say it, it might ring a bell. It's called Nautilus. All right. right. We'll start with Nathan in first position on this question. Billionaire Mark Laurie, L-O-R-E, is planning to use his wealth to develop a utopian desert city called Telosa. He also recently joined Alex Rodriguez to purchase the Minnesota Timberwolves and Minnesota Lynx pro basketball teams. Where did his money come from, you ask? Well, some of it was earned as e-commerce CEO of What Company, where he launched the much-mocked innovation incubator Store Number 8 and oversaw the failure of Jet Black. Store Number 8 is, that's like it's one of those sort of like attempted, like concept sort of things for e-commerce. I don't know exactly which one this is from, though. Jet Black is not doing anything for me. I feel like Walmart had one of those sort of incubators, and Walmart also is big enough that if you were e-commerce CEO of it, you might become a billionaire. So I'm going to go with Walmart. Okay. So Mark Laurie had, I mean, he founded a few companies. I think the first one to gain any kind of notice was called diapers.com. 
Not quite sure what that did, but I can kind of guess. But he was the founder of Jet.com, which was acquired very expensively by Walmart, which also acquired him in the process. And, you know, he sort of attempted to turn that into Jet Black, which was a personal shopping service, which as my MBA class kind of analyzed was a spectacularly terrible idea because Walmart's core customers are exactly the opposite of the kind of people who would use a personal (laughs) Walmart personal shopping is not a thing. (laughs) Right. And the kind of people who would be perhaps interested in a personal shopping service would not want to be associated with Walmart, which is, you know, an issue with them, not with Walmart. I, I myself have frequently shopped at Walmart, so I'm not trying to derogate Walmart shoppers. Walmart is the correct answer, if that wasn't clear. Okay. Henry, now in first position on this question. A maternal grandson of jeweler Charles L. Tiffany, of Tiffany fame, and a paternal great-grandson of the missionary who introduced Christianity to Hawaii, what man was posthumously recognized by Yad Vashem, the Anti-Defamation League, and the Simon Wiesenthal Center for his role in saving from the Holocaust numerous European Jews, among them Mark Chagall and Hannah Arendt, yet remains less famous than his father, a former Connecticut governor and U.S. senator. Great-grandson of the missionary who introduced Christianity to Hawaii. Okay, so, huh, okay. It's giving me a sort of, so his father was a Connecticut governor and U.S. senator. Okay, so this person is an American as well. I wasn't sure because, um, let's see. Then his role of saving from the Holocaust numerous European Jews. So I would imagine that this person would possibly be, it would either be, he would possibly be an employer or maybe he would be someone who was able to transport others. I'm trying to think, okay, would I be familiar with this from a movie? I, I mean, there, I suppose that there would be, there's Schindler's List, but having never seen that, I can't make any <laughs> reasonable guess about that. But I also don't have anything better. So I'm going to go with Schindler. Yeah, a decent guess. I, I see the, your logic there, but not correct. So I'll pass to Akiva. Okay. So if he's saving people in the 40s, chances are he was born turn of the century or thereabouts. So his father would be a 19th century governor and senator. I feel like I may have heard something about this on a previous episode. We're maybe talking about famous political families of Connecticut. I am a native of Massachusetts, but regrettably have not paid a great deal of attention to Connecticut politics. I'm also a Jewish person, but I don't think that is helping particularly in this. I will say Trumbull. Trumbull, okay. Decent guess, but not correct. Nathan? I also have not heard of this person, though also being Jewish, feel like maybe I should have, and we'll look them up when this is done, because this is a really cool story. But since I don't really have anything, I'm going to go with guess the common Jewish surname and say Levi. Okay. I think I talked before, maybe way back in like episode 12 about what, or episode 13, about what the most common Jewish surnames are. The third most common in the U.S. is oddly Miller, (laughs) after the Cohen and Levi. But yeah, this was someone who was not himself Jewish. And and there's a clue I withheld, basically, that would have led you direct, I think would have made you all think of his name although it's a clue that relates to his father, not to him. He, his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather all had the same first and last name. He was the fourth in his line. But I could have mentioned a place very far from Europe that would have immediately made you think of that name, and that place is Machu Picchu, 
Do you remember who was generally, uh, before people sort of realized how inaccurate it was to call someone a discoverer just because they were the first white man to see something, who was credited as the quote-unquote discoverer of Machu Picchu? I can't recall. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, it was a man. This was... Uh, I think I think it may have been after that that he served as governor and senator from Connecticut, but his name was Hiram Bingham or Hiram Bingham III. His father and grandfather were both missionaries named Hiram Bingham. And his son, the U.S. consul in France who issued visas, travel visas to many Jewish people fleeing the Holocaust, was Hiram Bingham IV. I did not know that. All right. Akiva now in first position on this question. What 1969 children's book by Penelope Farmer? the third and most famous installment in her Aviary Hall series, lent its name directly or indirectly to, one, a 1981 song by The Cure, two, the former stage moniker of singer-songwriter Jessica Poland, who currently goes by Laces, and three, a 2002 indie erotic drama film written and directed by Eric Byler that was championed by Roger Ebert and is now considered a landmark of Asian American cinema. Oh, this is, this is a very interesting question. Okay. Song by the Cure, stage moniker. See, the landmark of Asian American cinema is, I think, where I might get it from. The question is, can I remember that? A children's book into an erotic indie drama. That's quite a journey. Now that's kind of the, the reason I decided to write a question about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing they got it from the Cure song as opposed to the book, but I don't know. I think that's a very reasonable inference, though. So. Yes. So I'm going to think back of my Cure song knowledge. Yeah, I think the movie is where I'd get it from. 2002 indie erotic drama film, landmark of Asian American cinema. You know, there's one called Better Luck Tomorrow, but I don't think that's the answer. Well, I'll say it anyway. Better Luck Tomorrow. All right. Yeah. I mean, that was, I think, right around that year. And definitely also considered a landmark of Asian American cinema and launched the career of- necessarily erotic, but still. (laughs) Right, yeah. Launched the career of um, Justin Lin, the director. But yeah, it was a a crime thriller, not really a erotic interpersonal drama. But good guess. Pass to Nathan. None of these are doing a ton for me. So I am thinking that Aviary Hall sounds probably something to do with birds, given the aviary part of it. So I am going to invent something with a bird name and see what that does. I will say turtle dove. Oh, I I appreciate your logic, but I think you knew that was a long shot. I did. Uh, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Pass to Henry. So I think that if I was able to get this, I would probably be able to get it through children's book. Aviary Hall. Okay. So I suppose thinking along the same lines as Nathan, we can go with some other birds. You know, there's the pigeon, which there's the Mo Willem series about that, but that is certainly, that was published during my lifetime and certainly not 1969. Let's see, there could be perhaps a chicken book, Bluebirds. I mean, Bluebirds of Happiness is a phrase. I don't know that it is a song by the cure or if it is an erotic drama film, but it is a phrase that could possibly be used, I mean, for this sort of thing. We'll go with Bluebird of Happiness. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the Aviary Hall clue, I guess, even though it kind of at least provided a foundation for guessing, was a bit of a red herring and that it doesn't really point to the answer. So all of these things are called Charlotte Sometimes. 
that was the cure song the film was named after the song the singer songwriter i think actually took her name from the book not from the song but yeah charlotte sometimes is the answer i'm not familiar with the book it's probably not related to the eb whites no it's not yeah not a spider well, look, Dinesh, we're not doing amazing, but I feel like we're learning a lot tonight. <laughs> I mean, you know, you've gotten two answers so far, which is actually like pretty good by the standards. Of, I mean, generally very good quizzers appear on this podcast and you're, you're keeping pace with them. So nothing to be ashamed of. But yes, I'm glad you're learning as well. That's, you know, another, another goal that I have. So yeah, that's fine. Okay. So question six, it's Nathan in first position on this. Elizabeth Borton de Trevino won the Newbery Medal for her 1965 novel, I, Juan de Pareja, about the uh, slave of Diego Velázquez, who became a noted painter in his own right. She also authored five GLAD books, which are books in the series centering on what fictional character who debuted in 1913. Replacing the name of that protagonist with X, the titles of her contributions to the series are X in Hollywood, X's Castle in Mexico, X's Door to Happiness, X's Golden Horseshoe, and X and the Secret Mission. Who is this to? To Nathan. This is Newberry Metal is pointing towards more kid, young adults. I'm thinking of series that usually has a, a person play a kid's name or maybe an animal even that is more of a kid's book. In Hollywood, Castle in Mexico, the work of happiness started in 1913. So this is not anything, not anything recent. Thinking it's probably a per, like a kid's name, girl's name, from one of those like sort of fantastical stories of like someone who has a more interesting life to be a good story. I'm going to say Eloise. Ah, okay. That's a good guess, but not correct. I'm Pastor Henry. Okay. So, fictional character who debuted in 1913, but she was writing around 1965. Okay, so I would imagine, I don't know if this is Trevino's own character. I would imagine not, I mean, given the question, but I would, I don't know if it was like a a copyright thing with that. Fictional characters debuting in 1913, I'd imagine something that kids might be aware of fictional characters I'm sure that I'm <laughs> uh, let's see so Pollyanna is sort of what came to mind initially and I'm pretty sure I'm fairly confident that she was before that but I'm not really latching on to anything else I'm gonna go with Pollyanna all right yeah so some questions like the previous one don't really have hints embedded in them. Whereas with others, there are hints there, but you have to kind of figure out what exactly is is the hint and what's kind of a, a red herring. So here, things like secret mission might make you think of like spies. Hollywood might make you think of like, you know, I don't know, acting, entertainment, or things like that. But then there's also the word happiness in one of the titles. And that kind of rhymes with the entire series, which are called glad books. Right. So, so Nathan's impulse of looking for a girl's name was the correct one. The girl's name of the character who debuted in 1913 associated with being glad and happiness. It's Pollyanna. Good guess. Nice guess. All right. Yes. Very good. And now we come to the 
final cycle. So you should, so in this round, you should get one more question in first position and then one in second position and one in third position. So we'll start with Henry in first position on this one. Yvonne Elliman's 1977 cover of If I Can't Have You, popularized by the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, made her the first Asian-American solo artist to have a number one hit on the Billboard Hot 100. However, there's a case to be made that the first Asian-American to sing lead on a U.S. number one record was another Hawaiian, Larry Ramos of Filipino descent, who left the new Christy Minstrels and in 1967 joined what sunshine pop group known for intricate vocal harmonies? Sunshine pop group known for intricate vocal harmony. Mm. Okay, so I'm not really familiar with what sunshine pop is. But intricate vocal harmonies makes me think that there's going to be a lot of people in it. So we're going to have, I don't know if that's going to be <laughs> helpful in my thinking at all. Let's see. 1967 groups. Let's see. Intricate vocal harmonies. Sunshine. I mean, we have maybe sunshine leading to Florida, the sunshine state. Maybe, maybe this is. We'll go, let's call it the, the Florida Voices. All right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice, uh, nice attempt at uh, frauding a plausible answer. Uh, <laughs> I admire your spirit, but unfortunately it's not correct. So pass to Akiva. I've never heard of the genre of sunshine pop, which leads me to believe this is a hint. And if so, the group I know that has intricate vocal harmonies and had a hit called Let the Sunshine In is Fifth Dimension, which if you saw... That Summer of Soul movie is featured in fairly prominently. So let's go with Fifth Dimension. I see your logic there, definitely, but it's not correct. Pass to Nathan. I was going the same way with Sunshine is probably pointing towards the group because I also have never heard of Sunshine Pop. And and I'm thinking of a a group that has a lot of parts and their name is reminiscent of a place with a lot of sunshine. So I'm going to say the Beach Boys. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that was real, or it wasn't sort of a lateral thinking hint. I mean, that is the name of the subgenre associated with them. So it's a hint in that if you're familiar with that subgenre, there's only a few groups from it that had big hits. I mean, in that sense, it's a hit, but it wasn't like a lateral thinking hit. But yeah, this group actually before Larry Ramos joined, they already had had one number one hit, which was called Cherish, one of my favorite songs. And then after he joined, they had another one windy, which it's hard to really say who sings lead on them because they're built around harmonizing. So there's multiple lead vocalists, but I thought that was a fun fact anyway. They were called The Association. Okay, Akiva now in first position on this. The Investigation Discovery Network true crime show, Cry Wolf, the best-selling 2015 memoir, The Movement, How I Got This Body by Never Going to the Gym in My Life, and Summit Ice Apparel, a, quote, not-for-profit company dedicated to producing quality outdoor apparel and raising awareness of the Holocaust, for its website, are all real-life entities spawned by what TV series? Wow, there's a lot of question in this question. <laughs> They're real-life entities spawned by what TV Okay. I'm trying to think how a TV series could spawn a real-life entity. And I think it would have to be something like Shark Tank? If there is a product being sold or something like that. All the outdoor apparel and raising awareness will have us. Again, I'm learning so much, Yogesh. <laughs> Nothing I necessarily wanted to learn, but I am learning it. How a true crime show could come out of a TV series. 
let's say Shark Tank, because I do not have a better answer. Okay. I mean, if I were sort of looking at this question blind without knowing the answer, that's probably where my mind would go. So that's a very good guess, but not correct. Nathan? I'm not sure where the second necessarily and the third ones of this exactly tie in, but coming into it, obviously, without knowing the answer. The first part, talking about a crime show called Cry Wolf, makes me think of Dick Wolf, who did the Law and Order series. And there are enough of those that they could have these other things somewhere related to it. So I am going to say Law and Order. I like that logic. Although the spelling is slightly different. The Cry Wolf is W-O-L-F-E and Dick Wolf is W-O-L-F. But yeah, that was a, I mean, can't really fault going down that line of thinking for a guess, but unfortunately it's not correct. So pass to Henry. Okay. (laughs) This is, it's one of the things where I remember details about this, but I can't remember the name. I remember because this was also on Harpo 84. (laughs) This was some sort of mockumentary series and something that stuck out, struck out to, stuck out to me was there's something that they did like fake or fake Starbucks or something along those lines. But I can't remember for the life of me what this was called. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm just, I think I, I'm going to throw out, look, I, maybe it's, is it, is it jackass? <laughs> So, so each of you, I think, had something to contribute to the answer. I think Akiva's notion of Shark Tank kind of centered in on the genre that this show is essentially kind of spoofing. Mm. And, you know, Henry is correctly describing the show, although he can't remember the title. And as I for Nathan... Well, now, but a lot of good... For, <laughs> yes. And as for Nathan, he, of course, is most directly connected to the title. What's the title, Akiva? It's Nathan for you of Nathan- the fake Starbucks fan. Nathan for you is the title. Yes. I didn't intentionally connect that with one of the contestants <laughs> names, but it's an interesting connection to have. Yeah. I think, I think dumb Starbucks was what oh. uh, they called that, that, that the idea that they could get around, they could get around, I guess, all kinds of copyright infringement by arguing that they were parodying Starbucks for fair use mm-hmm. and in order to parody it. They just labeled, they copied it exactly, but labeled everything dumb. <laughs> hey, that's the law. I don't set it up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. All right. So yes, Nathan, for you was the answer. And now the final question is for you, Nathan. Okay. <laughs> I see what the, you did. <laughs> the recent film adaptation of best-selling novel Where the Crawdads Sing has reopened some issues swirling around its author, Delia Owens, as well as her ex-husband and ex-stepson, regarding their controversial conservation activities in Zambia. One particular flashpoint is the 1996 ABC News documentary, Deadly Game, the Mark and Delia Owen story, which apparently shows on screen the killing of a poacher, an incident that led Zambian authorities to declare all three Owens as persons of interest in a still ongoing investigation. Which broadcast journalist, a familiar face to quizzing fans, was the primary host of that ABC News documentary? Uh, Broadcast journalist... This feels like it's going to be one of the parade of Jeopardy guest hosts, given the familiar face to quizzing fans. So it's probably not Dr. Oz. (laughs) And it's definitely not Aaron Rodgers. (laughs) As entertaining as Aaron Rodgers being a host of a documentary about coaching in Zambia would be. One of those lists that I knew really, really well like a year ago, and now I'm trying to pull the names out. (laughs) (laughs) I will go with Katie Couric. 
Okay, I absolutely see your logic there, but unfortunately not correct. So pass to Henry. Katie Kirk was the only Jeopardy host who I could recall as a broadcast journalist. I mean, I suppose there's, oh man, that one guy, you know, what's his, what's his name? <laughs> but let's see. He was also, he's also not ABC though. So yeah, I cannot broadcast journalist. Okay. I don't know. Maybe LeVar Burton was a broadcast journalist at one point. I don't know. We'll go with that. All right. Again, I, I see your logic, but yeah, I don't believe. He's done many things in his, his career. I don't believe that was one of them. So pass to Akiva. Maybe before his time, but I feel like Anderson Cooper was a Jeopardy host at one point in that whole nightmare. Let's say Anderson Cooper. All right. All logical guesses, but in this case, the television, you are correct. I was pointing you towards someone who hosted a television game show based on quizzing, but the show I was trying to point you toward was not Jeopardy, but Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? This was Meredith Vieira. You know, I was going to say that she was the host when I was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? So you'd think I would have gotten that, but oh well. Still like you, Meredith. (laughs) All right. So we end that round. And again, the Points will go up and these scores will quickly be swept away. But for now, we have Henry, the leader, at 0.2, followed by Nathan at 0.1, and Akiva at 0.0. A richly deserved (laughs) 0.0. That's okay. There have been been many times the person who was at zero at this point went on to win the game. Okay, but we'll move on now into the rounds that work differently. So starting with the not all that hard round. In this round and all successive rounds, each of you will get three specialist questions related to the categories you submitted, but with a caveat not intended to be a fair or comprehensive test of your knowledge of them. They may relate directly or obliquely to the topic. To keep everyone on their toes, I won't reveal the categories, at least not up front. They may become evident as the game goes on. So before you can answer, your opponents will get to work together to try and steal the points from you. You only get a chance to answer for points if your opponents miss. If I pass it to you without saying whether they got it right, If you know for certain that they're right, then you can just confirm. Otherwise, it's in your interest to lock in something different, because if just copying their answer, you won't get points either way, whether they're right or wrong. There may sometimes be bonuses if a question is stolen from you, which will be directed only at you, and they'll be worth half as many points as the steal. Those are just quasi-randomly sprinkled in. There aren't really a ton of them in this game, so they may not even come up, but those questions, they relate to the question they spin off from, but they won't always fit in the same category or be at the same level of difficulty. So the questions in this round are not all that hard. They'll be worth two points as a steal, one point as a specialist. And now, and for the rest of the game, the points for a stolen question go to both stealers, even if only one knew the answer. So again, there's lots of things going on that lead to outcomes, including luck. The outcomes are a mixture of luck and skills. So, you know, if the luck happens to go against you, that doesn't mean you're not a good quizzer. Okay. So if everyone's ready to begin, we'll start with Akiva and Nathan to try and steal from Henry. Is everyone ready? Yeah. All right. Okay. So Akiva and Nathan to try and steal from Henry. Which composer's concerto in F minor for bass, tuba, and orchestra, written in 1954 for London Symphony Orchestra's principal tubist, Philip Catalinet, was the first major concerto for solo tuba? Huh. Well, so this is written in 1954. It's written for the London Symphony. So I think we could say it's probably a British composer. Yeah, I think British. So Britain, mm-hmm. possibility. Benjamin Britten is one. Yeah. I'm trying to think who else is writing at that time. Unless we're getting into to more, more of an American who's also still writing for 
like Coke or one of those guys. Like, yeah, one of those guys. Yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose it could be someone like Holst, although I think he was a little earlier than that. He was also British, confusingly. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I mean, I think I'm trying to think. I mean, I would say Britain is probably the safest guess. Britain seems like a reasonable guess. Is yeah, I, I think it seems like a reasonable guess. I don't, I don't know this piece though. I did. I sat in the back of the band next to the tubas when I used to play in band and orchestra, and it would have been kind of fun to play this one. Yeah. I'm good I'm, with Britain. I'm yeah. good with Britain okay. if we don't know anything better. Let's say that for now. You're locking in Britain? Yes. All right. Very decent guess, but not correct. So I'll pass to Henry. You were on the right track around British composers from that earlier era. Pulse and Britain were around the same time, but this is Ralph Vaughn Williams's yeah. Cuba Concerto. Rafe Vaughn Williams. Rafe Vaughn Williams. Yes, it was pronounced Rafe. Oh, well. Yes. Yeah. It's okay. You still got it right when we got it wrong. We <laughs> yes. <still> it. <laughs> yeah, I think I've mentioned, I think definitely in episode 24 and episode 28, maybe a few other times, sort of the big three people think of with 20th century British composers are Elgar, Britain, and Vaughn Williams. And Holst should be in there too. No good reason to leave him out. He was born and lived his entire life in England. He, he's definitely English, but his name doesn't really sound as English as the others. But yeah, good job, Henry. And now we go to Henry and Nathan to try and steal from Akiva. The first Black playwright to earn a Tony Award for Best Play was Joseph A. Walker, who won in 1974 for a work adapted into a 1976 film starring James Earl Jones, Cicely Tyson, and Lou Gossett Jr., and directed by Krishna Shah, one of the first Indian immigrants to work as a screenwriter and filmmaker in Hollywood. That play is set in Harlem, but titled for what faraway river? Far away river. Let's see. Okay. So faraway rivers, we could think rivers in Asia, Africa, Europe. Um, yeah, I'm thinking that from the the black playwright seems to be pointing possibly more towards Africa, though the director being Indian could also point towards towards like yeah. Towards India. <laughs> so yeah, we got um let's see. We, yeah, then we got Nile, we got the Niger River, we have um, Congo, yes. Ganges, Ramaputra. Hmm. But oh, let's see, a work adapted into a 1976 film. I haven't watched many 1976 films that I can remember. Well, now if you look at my, my Learned League stats, this hybrid film theater question is right up my wheelhouse of questions to give me a three on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I don't disagree. <laughs> but this is a geography-ish question, so. Yeah, that, that does help, but now we're just picking a river. Yeah, sort of. I don't know. What's your river of choice, Nathan? I would... I would say either Congo or Ganges, but those are just picking rivers. I mean, I, I'd lean more towards Congo. Yeah, but that's fine with me. <laughs> we'll lock in Congo. All right, yeah. The Congo was a, a poem by Rachel Lindsay, easily the most famous poet from my hometown of Springfield, Illinois, but it's not the correct answer here. What do you think, Akiva? Well, I'm actually, in, in a rare example, Perfect on theater in Learned League. So I'm a real zero on theater. But this is not something I know off the bat. I would think 
Is it possible the Jordan River is what we're talking about? The River Jordan? Let's say that. that. Okay, you're locking in Jordan? Yeah. So Nathan and Henry were more on the right track looking at Africa. They just, there's sort of, I guess, really three big rivers in Africa, three really long ones. The Nile in sort of the northeast, the Niger in the west, and the Congo in sort of the more southern part. And of those three, they went for the wrong one, but it was, the, the play is called the River Niger or Niger. Okay. All right. Akiva and Henry now to try and steal from Nathan. Filipino immigrant Pedro Flores is credited with popularizing the yo-yo in the U.S. His main innovation was to fasten the string to the axle with a loop rather than a knot. This allows users to perform a basic trick in which the yo-yo reaches the end of its uncoiled string and continues spinning. What is that trick called? This is just walking the dog. So <laughs> I, I do know a bit about yo-yoing. You're pretty close with that. As far as I remember, walking the dog is just doing this trick and then just letting it touch the ground. But I think that this is the sleeper. Since oh. if you just like throw it down, it'll it'll just sit there sleeping until like you you pull up on it and get it to move around. And then I don't know. Yeah, that sounds right. Okay. I'd agree on that. As I recall in the Philippines, it was a weapon that was that, then de-weaponized that, as a toy. I seem to remember that. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, I, I'll I'll agree on sleeper. Okay. We'll lock in sleeper. Okay, so my research indicates that the weapon thing, though widely repeated, is an urban legend. There's okay. no actual evidence that it was ever used as a weapon. Excellent. Yeah. Is sleeper correct or sleeping? Is that correct, Nathan? Sleeper's correct, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and I would also concur that the weapon thing is a really fun story from early demonstrators to try to sell yo-yos to kids. Ooh, it's this cool weapon, but it like throwing a rock would be more effective than throwing a yo-yo. So it doesn't really make sense for it to actually be a weapon. <laughs> Is it a bladed yo-yo? I don't know. Yo-yos, you know, with like uh, one of those uh, the pop the tires of the other people's cars, you know, with like spy movies. <laughs> I guess I could imagine a scenario where you only had one. If you, if, you, if you were facing a bunch of different people, I guess you could like hit one with the weight and then immediately get it back and then hit another and so on. <laughs> Maybe then it would be advantageous, but I don't know how often that happens in real life. But yeah, basically, I mean, all of what are called like 1A tricks are sort of built off of sleeping or the sleeper. But the most basic one is, yeah, just sleeping. All right. So a successful steal for Akiva and Henry and now Akiva and Nathan to try and steal from Henry. Pokemon franchise creator Satoshi Tajiri was a huge fan of arcade video games and co-founded the fanzine Game Freak, which evolved into his game development company of the same name. But he also had what other hobby? Shared with, among others, Alfred Kinsey, Vladimir Nabokov, and the protagonist of a 1963 John Fowle thriller novel. Hmm, well, I know Nabokov was a big butterfly enthusiast slash serious scientist. So that yeah. hobby would be Lepidoptery? What would the novel be? Yeah, I think it's something where you're like viewing a lot of things because that, that, that plays into the Pokemon. There's an oh, collecting, yeah. collecting, collecting things. I, I was thinking birding, but the you know, Lepidoptery would also, same family of things where you're, you're trying to view many species of, what would be the thriller novel for, for either of those? Yeah, I think Lepidopterist is a lot of name for a thriller. Unless it's um, filling up. I feel like the novel is probably named roughly one of these things. <laughs> a bird watcher. Yeah, I said bird watching is what came to mind first for me. 
but if you have the the in on butterfly watching yeah i mean Nabokov, i know did that i just don't know about the other guys i mean it's as good a guess as any i think which one bird watching uh butterflies butterflies butterfly collecting butterfly collecting yeah yeah, if you know that, if you have that in on on Nabokov, I think that the, 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 they're they're pretty similar <laughs> in in terms of the collection. So, yeah, if that's okay, we yeah. okay with that. Okay, yeah. butterfly collecting. Okay, so yeah, when you were leaning toward lepidoptery, I confirmed that that's basically not really a hobby. That's a term for the scientific study of butterflies. Sure. But butterfly collecting, on the other hand, would count as a hobby. And my policy on these is to sort of not penalize over-specificity when the, the answer line is a little left a little vague like that. So Kinsey, for example, was an expert in gall wasps. So his collection was of insects, but not of butterflies. Nabokov did collect butterflies. So did the protagonist of that novel and the movie adaptation of it, which were both called The Collector. Yeah. So Tajiri's hobby was basically insect collecting, but I'll accept butterfly collecting. Yeah. This was kind of the inspiration for the sort of gotta catch them all. Thing. Yeah. And I do have a bonus for Henry. So, Henry, what classic arcade game was Tajiri's gateway into falling in love with the medium of video games? Surprisingly, it was, well, surprisingly to me anyway, it was the subject of a 1982 nonfiction book by none other than Martin Amos. Classic arcade. Okay. So, I'm not familiar with the nonfiction books about this, but let's see. I do recall there was that one film about the one person who was trying to achieve the high score on Donkey Kong, who was eventually refuted by Twin Galaxies. But I mean, let's see, Centipede would also sort of fall into the same sort of bug collecting genre. I'm going to go with, let's go with Donkey Kong. Okay. Yeah, that's a very good guess. It's just one of those fun facts for me because Mark Namath was a fairly success. I mean, had already sort of had a large literary output at that point, and it was very unexpected for him to sort of fall in love with that then very young medium of video games. So it's a very sort of just one of those bizarre facts. I lo- that's my hobby of collecting things. My, I collect <laughs> weird, weird facts like that. But his book was called Invasion of the Space Invaders. Oh, okay. It was about the game Space Invaders. All right, Henry and Nathan now to try and steal from Akiva. Strange Bargain is a 1949 crime drama film that would likely be forgotten today by all but noir buffs, if not for the fact that in 1987, which detective TV series produced an episode that serves as a direct sequel to it, with Strange Bargain cast members Martha Scott, Jeffrey Lynn, and Harry Morgan all reprising their roles? Looking at detective series of the 1980s. Was Columbo earlier or later? <laughs> Columbo was certainly not later, I would imagine. It's not later. Oh, okay. Let's see. Monk was later. Monk, yeah. Let's see. Columbo has been around for a while, it feels like, such as there's one episode. This is like, there's another main detective and they run into some people from this 1949 movie. <laughs> huh, Maybe. I don't know. Maybe it's one of those sort of, uh, I mean, I, I, it's sort of, I guess, a bit tangent, but it's sort of making me think, you know, okay, is this one of the Star Trek Next Generation sort of things, you know, where they're meeting Sherlock Holmes on the, on the holodeck, but that is certainly not. Yeah, or like the Dixon, the Dixon Hill detective stuff. If it wasn't for the fact that it specifies detective TV series, I like that. I like that realm of thinking, but 
I don't think we calling Star Trek The Next Generation a detective TV series feels like a slight stretch, even though it's not entirely false. They're detecting the stars. Yeah. Um, is this in the like Hawaii Five O or Miami Vice? Miami Vice. I, I should note that I am just I am not very well versed in detective TV series. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm not. Will, I'm willing. I'm willing to go along with your suggestions, though. Miami Vice does seem to be around the same era. I know that there was some sort. There was an NES game that was based off of this. Yeah. At one point, but in 1987, puts it around that time. It feels like it's roughly the right time. I don't know about the connection to the rest of it, but we don't we don't seem to have a, a, a great answer. So <laughs> you want to go with it? I'm I'm happy to go with Miami Vice. Yeah, let's let's lock in Miami Vice. Okay, I will circle back to that, but for now I'll just pass it to Akiva. Well, this is a fairly meta move of a detective show to do. And the only real detective show I can think of that was on at this time that was doing strange things like this is probably Moonlighting with Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepard. So I think that's going to be my guess because I think it was an interestingly weird guess. I think of Miami Vice is more of a cop show as opposed to a straight detective show. So let's say Moonlighting. Yeah, that is a very good guess. But So first of all, to answer your question about 1987, was that before or after Columbo? The answer is yes to both. The original NBC run of Columbo ended in 1978, and its later ABC run began in 1989. So that would, in fact, be both after and before <laughs> Columbo. <laughs> but yeah, in terms of the detective series, the big in the 80s, I mean, that's that's always been a bit of a pop culture black hole for me because I didn't take my own interest in it in pop culture until the 90s. And I spent a lot of time, you know, before then learning about things from my parents' generation with the 60s and 70s. But just from like looking at kind of the list of best drama series Emmy nominees, the four detective series that were nominated in the 80s oddly all began with the same letter, Magnum P.I., Miami Vice, Moonlighting, and Murder, She Wrote. And... I guess if, you know, you kind of wanted to look at these, Moonlighting is a good guess. Miami Vice, I mean, the, the pitch it was sold on was literally MTV Cops. So it was really aimed at sort of a youth demographic. So kind of centering a story on, again, if these people were sort of playing adults in the 40s, by the 80s, they would be fairly elderly. So centering a story on sort of elderly characters would be kind of uh, out of character for that. But there was one 80s show that was famous for casting elderly actors because its star knew that like they needed to keep their SAG eligibility in order to get health insurance. So she made a point of getting them cast on the show for that reason. It was Murder, She Wrote. What about Matlock? Does that not count? <laughs> that is, yeah, also a there classic. Are a lot of old, there are a lot of old people in Miami. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. And yes. Now there are, but in the 80s, of course, they were younger. <laughs> yes, yes. There we go. Yeah, Madlog is another M from that era, although it, it never got a Best Drama Series nomination. But yeah, all, all good guesses, but it was Murder, She Wrote that did the whole meta whimsical thing here. Hi, this is Future Yogesh. I just wanted to apologize to any fans of any Emmy-nominated detective shows from the 80s that I left out, most notably Cagney and Lacey, which won the Best Drama Series Emmy twice. I also wanted to note that as a promo, NBC did in fact make a sketch parodying Miami Vice with old people. It was called Miami Nice, and it was in fact the direct inspiration for The Golden Girls. 
All right, Akiva and Henry now to try and steal from Nathan. BLT Restaurant Group filed for bankruptcy in March 2022, but that didn't stop it from partnering with a food company in the launch of what new cocktail earlier this month? A July 21st article in the Washington Post voraciously section quotes a brand manager describing this drink as, quote, rich and smooth and tastes like a dirty martini, but taken to a whole new level with a delectable, outrageous twist and garnishes. The article, however, describes it as tasting, quote, like a bad joke and looking, quote, like a deranged cheese monster. So note that I'm looking for the one word name of the drink, not the name of the company or the brand that's partnering with BLT restaurants. Okay. I mean, well, so BLT, I know there was a series of restaurants in New York run by the chef Laurent Torandel, the bistro Laurent Torandel. And I don't know if that's the same BLT restaurant group. But if it is, it could be like cheeseburgers. I mean, like a cheeseburger teeny. <laughs> you know, that's too weird. <laughs> that would be a, a one word name. Let's see. Rich and smooth and tastes like a dirty martini, but taken to a whole new level with a delectable, outrageous twist and garnishes. Okay. Do we want to try looking like trying going the, the food company direction? Which one it, it partnered with? I'm not sure if it's like a restaurant chain or like uh, a company that is known for like distributing foods like I don't know like Goya or something I mean I feel like I feel like deranged cheese monster is probably the best hint we have right uh, so would I don't know craft, that it's great thing. oh well that's an interesting idea could it be a craft teeny a craft teeny hmm I mean a dirty martini is a martini with like the juice that the olives or onions came in right yeah so I'm trying to think what it would taste like. Again, I feel like deranged cheese monster is our help here. I'm on the other side. I'm trying not to think about what it tastes like. Yeah, it's the best. Deranged cheese monster. I mean, I enjoy coming up with, you know, <laughs> puns for cocktails with cheese. I mean, let's see. We could have... Um, I feel like all cheese monsters are inherently deranged. Right. Yeah. Sure. The fact that food company is the, the food company is unspecified leads. I, th I think that this would be a, a sort of portmanteau between it and what the cocktail is, though. Like macaroni. That. It's not really one word. Macaroni and cheese. No, yeah, but just macaroni. I mean, I I can get behind that. Sure. I mean, I mean, I couldn't get behind it, but like I I can get behind the idea of submitting it as an answer. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to drink it again before I aforementioned deranged cheese monster. But like, let's say it. Why not macaroni? Sure. Okay. Let's go with the macaroni. I I really enjoy the creativity of that guess, and if anyone ever decides to make that, I think you know we all might share in the royalties. <laughs> but um, it's not the correct answer, Nathan. Oh, this is. Always great when it's your specialty category and you have absolutely no idea where this one was going. This feels like it's something from feels like it's like a cocktail at one of the like big chain restaurants, talking about outrageous twists and garnishes. For some reason, the olive maybe put the dirty martini. Dirty martini is a martini with olive juice in it, which is making me think. Olive Garden, which would have a lot of cheese and and, and kind of the, the dirty martini aspect to it. But I don't know the name of the drink, so I am going to think of something that would be related there and go with the 
breadstick teeny. <laughs> <laughs> the unlimited breadstick teeny. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> One word. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, again, one thing I'd like to do with this podcast is to, you know, help people show that even when they don't get the right answer, they at least were thinking along the right lines. So Henry had two very good thoughts that were along the right lines. One, as you all kind of kind of picked up on, that the answer would be a portmanteau of a word and martini. And the other that you're looking for a brand associated with craft foods. The thing is, though, that like like craft singles, for instance, you couldn't really it'd be hard to mix with like a martini or oh. so on. But it might be either if it was something that was, for instance, sprayed. Cheese with cheese? The, uh, <laughs> I think the craft uh, processed cheese is called Velveeta. Oh. And this, this cocktail is called a Veltini. Disgusting. <laughs> I will say, I, when you started reading it, I was thinking, oh, this must be Velveeta. But I would have then gone with Velvetini. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you have to get credit for that, though. <laughs> I, I might be inclined, especially if no one else was close to it, I might be inclined to be generous on that. Yeah, but, well, you didn't say it, so it's a moot yeah. point. Hi, this is Future Yovish. Velveeta, like Cheese Whiz, is a processed cheese product made by Kraft, but I have no idea why I thought it was a spray. It's not. All right, Kiva and Nathan now to try and steal from Henry. Though not exactly analogous to the Nobel Prize, the Fields Medal is considered one of the highest honors in the field of mathematics. Nearly all of its recipients have academic backgrounds in pure math, with the exception of 1990 awardee Edward Witten and 2014 awardee Martin Herrer, both of whom hold PhDs in what other field? Herrer and Witten. This feels like it's going to be one of the sort of, I don't know either of these people, but it feels like we're heading towards one of the heavy numbers, but not pure math. So something like statistics or it can be like econ. It could be like theoretical physics or something, but it probably has its own area. Yeah. It could also be one of more of a, a hard science. I think economics is an interesting idea. Yeah. That was the one. I like there's a lot of modeling and numbers and, and getting into some formula for the market or for... <laughs> I think there's a lot of formulas that come out of econ, even though it's not pure math. Witten, and names don't do anything for me. Any thoughts on, on this one? Just as I am perfect at theater, I am also quite terrible at math. So yeah, um, I'm actually, yeah, I'm fairly good at, at math, but. I mean, I, I economics or statistics. Yeah, <laughs> I'm fine with either of those guesses. Let's, let's go with statistics. Great. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's lock in statistics. All right. Good guess. What do you think, Henry? I am not familiar with either of these people. So, yeah. I mean, statistics, that would, that, that would be a sort of math-y field. I mean, along the same sort of lines of computational things, we have computer science. That would be another PhD. That would be a pure math adjacent. There's got a lot of graph theory stuff going on there electrical engineering that could be another sort of field that they might have academic backgrounds in again with graphs i know that uh, one of the canadian universities they've got like specific degrees for like optimization and combinatorics which i mean that that is pure math but i it's it's kind of amusing that it isn't that's not what's printed on the degree but of those i'm kind of inclined with computer science that's going to be my answer Okay, yeah, those are all good guesses. I think, yeah, statistics, computer science, economics. I mean, you know, John Nash, who was a pure mathematician, won the Nobel Prize in economics. So, yeah, I could definitely see that here. But 
it was Akiva's first thought that was on the right lines when he said theoretical physics. Really? Physics is the answer, yes. Hmm. Even a broken clock, you know? <laughs> All right. Henry and Nathan now to try and steal from Akiva. This, it has a bit of an introduction, but I think once you see the full question, you'll see which parts to focus on. So Alex Trebek may have considered its fans to be losers in an infamous interview in a Jeopardy episode, but the musical genre known as nerdcore has many passionate fans. I myself am not a devotee, but I'm familiar with the scene because one of its most popular practitioners, Andrew Nielsen, aka MC Lars, was my roommate in college. In fact, I brokered an interview between Andrew and then MIT professor Henry Jenkins about the use of literary references in Lars's work. So it should come as no surprise that there's an MC Lars track based on Hamlet. Hey there, Ophelia, from the 2009 album, This Gigantic Robot Kills. So here's the question. Fill in the two words I've redacted from these lyrics taken from a part of the song where the speaker is Hamlet's father's ghost. Here are the lyrics. Swear, swear, swear to revenge my regicide. Claudius iced me one night. Under my crown, he tries to hide. So Hamlet, here's your mission. Use your blank, blank. Make them think you're crazy. Bring justice, fuse the fission. So, disclosure, I never read Hamlet. I read an adaptation of Hamlet that was a choose-your-own-adventure version, to be or not to be. (laughs) And that was very amusing. Those were the two choices, to be or not to be? (laughs) Yes. There was more to it, but I I can highly recommend that one. It's, It's a lot of fun. But anyway, use your blank blank. Yeah, I, I feel like I've actually heard this song before, but I'm friends with, the, unsurprisingly, I'm friends with a lot of nerds, so <laughs> it feels like the song has gone around once or twice. Uh, let's see, it feels like there's probably a rhyming pattern we might be able to go off of here, so regicide, hide, mission, fission. You see, um, feels like with uh, mission fission, though, we're missing something at the end of the fission line uh, yeah. but unless there's unless we got a double sort of rhyme here yeah let's see. i mean famous phrases hamlet used here here's your mission swear 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 to avenge my regicide claudius ice me one night under my crown he tries to hide ophelia is hamlet's sister i believe ophelia is the mm-hmm. person who hamlet is in love with is in love yeah so not his sister, just not to be clear. No, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Could be something bride, if it's the one he's in love with. Let's see. I mean, one notable thing about Hamlet is that there is a play within a play. Yeah. Um, could it, I, I don't know if there's something, it's the murder of Gonzago, but I don't, that also, A, isn't two words, and B, would be a really lousy rhyme for fission. Yeah, well, I think it's about Ophelia, and it's you got regicide, hide, blank, like future bride. Okay, yeah, actually, yeah, I can get behind that. I'm fine. With, yeah, that, that yeah, sounds good to me. Okay, let's go. Yeah, let's go. Future bride, lock that in. All right, I see your logic, but not correct, Akiva. So I am against song parody in principle. However, I will allow it because this is your roommate and apparently a hero to some nerds. You were correct that the rhyme you should be looking for is mission and fission. After the ghost comes back and tells Hamlet what happened, he goes back to his friends and says that what he's going to do is 
make them think you're crazy. And the phrase he uses is put on an antic disposition. Yeah. So I kind of divided this into four lines, in which case the rhyme scheme would be A-A-B-B. So you are looking for something that rhymes with with fission. It's also an internal rhyme, so it does also rhyme with mission. And again, far be it for me, because, you know, Andrew is clearly the expert here. So far be it for me to tell him how to write lyrics. I really would have ended that line with bring justice to fruition. I think that... I think that would be a nice way to end it. But, yeah, I mean, uh, the, it's, it's a T rhyme as opposed to an S rhyme. So I think that works better. Yeah, just my opinion, of course. He is the one who's successful in his field. So, uh, But yeah, antic disposition is absolutely correct. All right. And now to finish out this round, if we were to move on to the slightly harder round, Akiva and Henry to try and steal from Nathan. Of the seven Koopalings who assist Bowser in the Super Mario-verse, six are either confirmed or thought to be named for prominent figures from the world of music. Who is the only exception? His name, derived from that of an American talk show host, is confusing because it seems to contradict the commonly accepted notion that the Koopalings are Bowser's offspring. Akiva, are you familiar with Super Mario Brothers? Uh, Only having watched a lot of friends play it in the 80s. Okay. I would like to take this one if that's okay oh please do okay so as far as i know let's see let's see so we got larry iggy lemmy ludwig van koopa roy wendy and then the last one is morton morton koopa so is morton Morton downey as far as i know i like that so Locke and Morton? Yeah, I think that's basic. Yeah, I mean, the full name given in the American version is Morton, Morton Koopa Jr., which is the confusing part, because, of course, if he's Bowser's son, who is Morton Koopa Sr.? <laughs> but, um... Bowser's given name. <laughs> exactly, yeah. There's been some back and forth in the canon in terms of whether they actually are offspring of Bowser. And actually, so this will lead into your bonus, Nathan, but... Larry, there's also been some confusion about the origin of the name. Some sources have said that it derives from Larry King. In 2015, the coiner of those names, Nintendo of America employee Davy Brooks, stated in an interview that the character, quote, just looked like a Larry. However, in 2012, Brooks has been shown to have edited the Super Mario wiki to say that Larry Koopa was in fact named for which musician? This is for Nathan. (sighs) Let's start with, I'm a little sad that my Mario category is run into an opponent who can just rattle off the names of all seven Koopalings. <laughs> Larry is one of the earlier, uh, from middle ones. I'm not super familiar with which Larry this is referencing. And to advance the game, just because it would be funny, I'm going to say Larry David. <laughs> Yeah, Larry David, again, has done many things in his career, but I don't think music is really one of them, unless you count his stint on Broadway and the producers. <laughs> but yeah, I think so Ludwig is, I think, named after Ludwig van Beethoven. The yeah. others generally have namesakes that are more modern and generally in kind of the rock area. You know, some are in kind of metal like Iggy and Lemmy. But Larry is apparently at, at, at that point, the story was that he was named for a member of U2, Larry Mullen. Junior? Junior, yes. Although he's not Larry Koopa Jr. That would be even more, more confusing. Uh, okay, so at the end of this round, we have score. Akiva is in the lead at 7.0, followed by Henry at 5.2, and Nathan at 2.1. 
I'm going to take a quick bathroom break and then return with the rest of the game. Of course, anything you say about me will still be recorded. Just keep that in mind. <laughs> Gosh, Yogesh is such a great host. <laughs> okay, we're basically halfway through at this point, and I announced the scores beforehand, and now we will move into the only somewhat hard round. So the questions will be worth four points as a steal, three as a specialist, two for a bonus if that comes up. And we'll begin with Akiva and Nathan to try and steal from Henry. The first generation of Pokemon includes all Pokemon, that's my coinage as a plural for Pokemon, with national Pokedex numbers ranging from 1 to 151. Which Pokemon, counterintuitively, is number 151? I say counterintuitively because if you knew which Pokemon was number 150, you might expect this one to be number 148. Boy, uh, I don't know a great deal about Pokemon, but I do know that they evolve into each other, right? Yeah, well, I'm not quite sure about, so kind of the big boss one in the original Pokemon is Mewtwo, and there is also one called Mew, and my recollection is Mew is some was some sort of special way to get it, and I feel like 150 was like the ones in the game, and then, and then there was Mew for 151, and then, so if this was, that would also fit with the clue, I think, because if Mu was 148, Mu2 would be 148 and 2 for 150, and Mu2, I'm pretty sure, is 150. I played the original Pokemon game. I'm really glad that, if that's correct, that the question didn't get into any of the many, many, many Pokemon games that have arrived since the first one. (laughs) I trust your knowledge of the game implicitly. Okay, let's lock in Mu. Okay, yeah, so Pokemon is one of my areas where it's one of those areas where a lot of people know a lot and I know virtually nothing. So uh, I kind of just had to kind of dip my toe into it to write this question. So my strength is not so much, you know, the Pokemon canon as finding ways to crowbar absurd wordplay into questions. <laughs> so <laughs> yes, you 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 uh, figured out that what I was hinting at there. Mew 2 is 150. Take away 2, you think it should be 148 for Mew, but no, it's 151. So we've had consecutive U2 and Mu2 questions? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Perhaps YouTube? I don't know. That's what my son is. Could be, yeah. One of many ways. My, I sometimes wonder what my subconscious is doing while I'm writing these, making, making connections. Making jokes all day long. <laughs> yes. I think, well, as early as like, I think the second episode, I had like the Biko and Bilko questions next to each other. And yeah, I was just like, yeah, that's, I guess on my brain works. <laughs> but um there's still time for more for more recent Pokemon games to come up. Just saying. <laughs> Specifically, one more time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, uh, Kiva, uh, sorry, uh, Henry and Nathan to try and steal from Akiva. So one of the most striking features of Shakespeare's oeuvre is his inclusion of villains, among them Iago, Richard III, Don John for Much Ado About Nothing, and Aaron in Titus Andronicus, who appear to do evil because of a complex mix of psychological factors rather than some readily apparent motive. Which romantic poet and aesthetic philosopher, who coined such now common phrases as suspension of disbelief, famously labeled this tendency motiveless malignity? Romantic poet and aesthetic philosopher. This was something that I had seen on a Wikipedia page at one point, but one point is long, long ago. So, yeah. Poets, Byron, I think, is that area. Yeah, Byron, like that era, yeah. And aesthetic philosopher. So, I guess maybe their poetry, I don't know if their poetry was part of their, their work 
with philosophy as well. I don't know if they intersect at all or if I'd be familiar with like the poet but not the philosophy. Let's see. Romantic poets. Do you have any uh, romantic poets? Maybe? No, this is get better at poets is one of those like if I ever actually get the call to go on Jeopardy we'll be in the realm of study. <laughs> Tennyson might have been around then. Maybe. Let's see. Like Keats around then? Yes, who <laughs> who I consistently <laughs> swap with Yates. Yes. I don't know. Do we want do we want to throw out throw out a lucky poet? Yeah, yeah so Byron Byron, I feel like we're the most confident is romantic. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll go with Byron. Okay. Yeah. Byron, I think, is generally classified as a romantic poet. So very good guess, but not correct. Akiva? So I think he's talking specifically about Iago, who gives like three or four different reasons for wanting to destroy Othello. The racism, the Passover for a job, and maybe sleeping with his wife. I think he calls it the motive hunting of motiveless malignity. And I believe this guy was a poet and aesthetic philosopher, and also, I think, super into opium. I think this is Coleridge. Yeah. So, I mean, there's sort of a sort of a core group of poets usually called romantic. And I think like Wordsworth and Coleridge wrote the lyrical ballads together. So they're often sort of the core of the movement. And yes, the correct answer is Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of them wrote sort of, they wrote in many different kind of genres, including sort of like criticism and sort of, you know, they, they both sort of expressed themselves through art and wrote about how art worked. So the, the lines between like poet, philosopher, critic weren't as clearly defined then as they are nowadays. Was Coleridge's criticism in the form of a, a poem? Was it like a sonnet or something? No, it's a, it's a literal like written out piece of criticism. He's wrong, but I appreciate it. <laughs> I, mean, I think it'd kind of, kind of be fun, you know? Yeah. Like- yeah, I think that that particular excerpt actually is kind of like marginalia, like his annotations of Shakespeare, which he used to prepare lectures that he delivered. All right. Good answer from Akiva. And now Akiva and Henry should try and steal from Nathan. Two sentences in a 1953 novel. Three measures of Gordon's, one of vodka, half a measure of Kina Lillet or Lille. Shake it very, very well until it's ice cold and then add a large thin slice of lemon peel. Those two sentences represent the first description of what IBA official cocktail. Current IBA instructions keep the proportions the same, but list the ingredients as just gin, vodka, and Lille Blanc. I guess Kina Lille isn't available widely anymore. Let's see. 1950, a novel that would... So this is the first description of the, of the cocktail. I don't know if the, like, the cocktail existed before the novel. Or... I mean, I'm wondering if this is a Bond novel. That was sort of where I was thinking as well. The first appearance of the vodka martini. Uh, we, we, just did, we just had the Valvini... Uh, yeah i can't remember uh valtini valtini sorry again i I prefer to refer to it as the deranged cheese monster oh sure yeah 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 fair enough yeah apparently the author of that voraciously column was and she's listed as an intern but i think you know with the turn of phrases like that she has a a bright future ahead of her (laughs) for certain yes (laughs) i mean it could be casino royale i'm fine with going with casino royale yeah, so let so it, would it be the vodka martini? I'm. I guess it would be the drink. I I I, I am not a, I'm not a drinker. I am not yet. <laughs> well, a standard martini would be gin and vermouth, but I guess this would be a vodka martini. So I mean, we can say vodka martini in the in the spirit of James Bond. 
Sure. Okie doke. Okay. Let's say that. Okay. So you locked in vodka martini? Yep. What do you think, Nathan? Uh, you are correct that this is a James Bond novel, and you're correct that it's Casino Royale. Specifically, though, Bond drinks vodka martinis in the movies for the most part. In the novel, this is a drink he invents for his love interest, and it's actually brought back in the movie Casino Royale, the Daniel Craig one. This is the Vesper. Yeah, that's correct. It appears in Casino Royale, the first James Bond novel. And he doesn't really drink it in any other, he doesn't order it or drink it in any other novels, presumably. I guess the in-universe explanation would be that he was so heartbroken by what happened with Vesper in this novel that he just couldn't return to it. This is also a huge, massive drink, if you look at the ingredients. (laughs) It's four shots of liquor plus some fortified wine. Well, you know, the lemon peel really thins it. And the lemon peel. It's actually, it's actually, it's, it's, if you like martinis, it's pretty good. It's the Kino Lille, as Yoga said, it, Kino Lille is not made anymore. There's a variety of aperitifs that are closer to it than Lille Blanc. Cochi Americano is generally considered to be the best modern equivalent of that. So if you go to a, a fancy cocktail bar and they have the Vesper on the menu, that's usually what they'll have as the as the aperitif, such as the bar called the Vesper <laughs> in in uh, Campbell, California, that I used to go to. Hmm. Very interesting. All right, Akiva and Nathan now to try and steal from Henry. So I've long been fascinated by the four-colored theorem, which states that it's impossible to make a map requiring more than four colors to color in all of its regions. Indeed, in fifth grade, when my teacher assigned us to color in a map of the U.S., I resolved to do it using only four crayons. And I didn't plan properly and ran to a spot where I had to use a fifth. So after getting the assignment back, I turned over the paper, traced the outline of the map on its back, and recolored it properly with four crayons. That's not really a part of the question. It's just an insight into me. (laughs) But speaking of the four-color theorem, following a number of false proofs, the four-color theorem was finally verified in 1976 by Kenneth Apple and Wolfgang Haken, although their proof was not immediately widely accepted. What characteristic of their proof made other mathematicians so skeptical of it? What makes mathematicians skeptical? <laughs> Was it in Cramp? <laughs> I would be skeptical as a mathematician. Because I could imagine some high-level mathematician writing out a proof in crayon. <laughs> it's not that difficult to imagine. If it's yeah. right, you use what you got, okay? Yeah. Yeah. You actually could um, see, like, crayon on the back of a napkin would be either completely skeptical or completely brilliant and could go very, very realistically in either direction. <laughs> what characteristic of their proof? Huh. I don't know. Give me theories. I don't know. Like, it's very short. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, no, no, no. I think, like, like Fermat's theorem was, like, written in the margins of a notebook originally. It was like, I found proof, but I can't write it in this margin. <laughs> And then it took, what, a few hundred years before somebody proved it with math that did not exist during Fermat's days. It's like, what is the characteristic of a proof? Like, it's... That it's entirely graphical? I don't know. Entirely graphical. I kind of like that one. Like, usually there's numbers, and this is just all... There are numbers in a proof, yes. Yeah, usually there's all numbers in a proof, but this one's all written in pictograph, in, in graphs, to show why it can't be. I don't know. It's a it's a possibility. Yeah. I have nothing really better. <laughs> we could say it. Yeah. 
the points are all imaginary. Might as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's go with it's. It's all graphical. Okay, a decent guess, but not correct. So I'll pass to Henry. So graphical proofs are are are, are a lot of time they're they're valid. You'll find you'll find uh, a lot of the ancient Greeks. You know, they did all their their work with constructions with straight edge and compass. So it's it's an interesting thought, but the characteristic of this proof that made people reluctant to accept it was that since there are lots and lots and lots of cases that they had to consider, Apple and Hawken, they used a computer to help them go through all the cases. And so the reason that other mathematicians are so skeptical is that this is a computer-aided proof. Yeah, I mean, there's still some skepticism about them now. Generally, people have kind of accepted that, you know, computers, or I guess the people who program the computers know what they're doing. But yeah, certainly in 1976, this was all very new. Yeah, but basically, you know, they had to reduce the number of potential, like all the possibilities out there, they reduced them to a finite number of cases, but even that was too large for humans to go and check every one of them. So a computer did it. And yeah, this was this resulted in a proof that's called non-surveyable and that you can't just like look at it and tell, even if you're an expert mathematician, you can't just tell from looking at it whether or not it's true. So that was uh, the controversy there. There's an interesting field of math called proof theory that looks at his proofs as like mathematical objects. I'm not sure what to make of it. I know that like it would be interesting to look further into, but I, I am wondering if like non-surveyable is a property that it would um would be interesting study in that. So I don't know. Yeah, that's definitely a very mathematician thing to do to start theorizing about proofs of mathematical <laughs> theorems. <laughs> this is interesting for an interesting use of the word interesting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, I think as I as I said in an earlier episode, paraphrasing a statement made by Alex Trebek in uh, AJ Jacobs' book, The Know It All. Right. To to do well this, you have to not just be interested in what you're interested in, but also interested in what you're not interested in. Counterpoint: I am very bad at math, and I'm still very bad at math. <laughs> All right, Henry and Nathan to try and steal from Akiva now. Not a math question, believe it or not. The Lehman Trilogy recently became the fifth Best Play Tony winner to win after being translated into English from another language. Two of the other plays in this category, Yasmina Reza's Art and God of Carnage, were translated from French by Christopher Hampton. Hampton didn't share those Tonys, but he has separately received two Best Play Tony nods, one of which came in 1987 for what play that is in English but has a French title and is based on a classic French novel. I'll also accept the English language title applied to its 1988 film version, which Hampton won an Oscar for scripting. God of Carnage was a learned answer like five seasons ago, as far as I can remember, so... Play that is in English but has a French title and is based on a classic French novel. Mm. So classic French novels. Yeah. I'm thinking we got all the Victor Hugo works. You know, Hunchback, Lamez, the Dumas. Yeah, the Musketeers. French title. Classic French novel. Are there any theme like so based on a classic French novel? Yeah. So, I guess it's like an adaptation, but like it uses some major themes, I guess, maybe from the novel. Are there any um, notable themes? Like I know, um, actually, I don't know. <laughs> Go ahead. And then, then there was an English titled film in, in the late 80s that won an Oscar. This is something that has sort of an interchangeable French and English title. Sure. Give is nodding very knowingly, it seems like. 
<laughs> Look, see. they can't all be math questions. Some of them. Are. <laughs> Let's see. So I guess one that kind of sticks out to me. I know I'm not sure. I can't remember if who wrote The Plague and The Stranger. The Stranger is what I was thinking of. Stranger was Camus. Yes. So. But did Camus write any plays? Oh, no, we don't, we don't want any plays for this. Uh, it's based on a novel, right? It's based on a novel, so it'd be a play. Could it be based on you know, the English language? Would it be The Stranger? I mean, Maybe. Stranger I mean, As I say in the question, I'll accept either the French or English yeah. version of the title. I don't recall a film version of The Stranger, but 88's not really in my film Like I was very, very I, small in 1988. <laughs> I guess... I don't know. I also don't know if like Camus would be um classic. I mean like yeah. notable, but I don't know if like we could call it like, classic. Yeah. So let's see. Could this be like a movie that has like perhaps a title that's a play on uh, I mean that 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 uses wordplay uh in reference to um the thing, like I don't know, the the uh, like the hunchback of I don't know, of of the Empire State Building. <laughs> I don't know. I, feel like I would know if the Hunchback that. of the Empire State Building won a Oscar. So I kind of want to see the Hunchback of the Empire State Building now. <laughs> Let's see. I've missed enough Academy Award questions in quizzing that I periodically go. I should learn all of the main Academy Award winners because that would help with with quizzing. Yeah, uh, but I've not gotten to actually doing that yet. <laughs> Screenplay is pretty far down. I feel like you'd have to memorize it. Yeah, probably. I'm just thinking of at least reading the Wikipedia articles more would at least maybe osmosis get some of these. I I don't think we're gonna pull it. <laughs> so I, I think we're, we're I think we're in guest land. <laughs> um, do you want to do the stranger? Sure. Yeah, let's do the stranger. All right. Yeah, I did. I did ask a Camus question in the soccer episode. Uh, so I, yeah, he was apparently a big fan of soccer. I would have uh, gotten that one. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, not not uh, correct here, Akiva. So it's not only a very good adaptation; it's a very difficult adaptation because it's an epistolary novel. So there's no actual dialogue in it. He had to make it up entirely based on these letters that are sent back and forth. It is considerably before Camus. It's a guy named Chaudrelo de la Clos, and it's dangerous liaisons. Yeah. So on Broadway, the play played as Les Liaisons Dangereuses, but the film version the following year with Glenn Close and John Malkovich and Michelle Pfeiffer was called Dangerous Liaisons. It's a great movie. Also, very, very young Keanu Reeves and Uma Thurman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The name sounds familiar. <laughs> it is extremely hot. It's a very hot movie. Well, it has John Malkovich, so obviously. <laughs> but, um... Hey, you know, acting is a very powerful thing. Yes. About a year or so after it, there was another film version of the same novel called Valmont, which sort of aged down the characters and had them played by Colin, well, the main ones, Colin Firth and Annette Bening and Meg Tilly, who were perhaps more conventionally attractive, but maybe didn't generate as much sexual tension. And don't forget Cruel Intentions. Uh, I I definitely, I don't forget Cruel Intentions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you remember, uh, I mean, this? yeah, since since we don't need a bonus, this is just sort of a throw it out there thing but do you remember what christopher hampton actually did win his two tonys for boy um well so one of them would have been for he won twice for the same show oh twice for the same show yes interesting what would the other play have been probably would have been in what is it an original or an adaptation 
it's a musical basically that's that's i think the part that's throwing well even even then you i'll just say since this isn't really for points anyway he was one of many hands who contributed to the book and lyrics of the troubled andrew lloyd Webber musical sunset boulevard wow i did not know that but god bless (laughs) all right akiva and henry now to try and steal from nathan a 2014 Gema Sutra article titled The Blue Shell and Its Discontents reads way too much, even by my standards, into the existence of the spiny shell, commonly referred to as the blue shell, in Mario Kart 64 and nearly all subsequent Mario Kart games. Rather hyperbolically, the essay opens by suggesting that some might liken the blue shell to, quote, everything that's wrong with America. (laughs) So what specifically does the blue shell do in the game? Are you a Mario Kart kind of guy? Again, I've watched a lot of it being played. You remember what the blue shell does? Uh, apparently everything that's wrong with America. <laughs> does it send you back to the beginning of the game? I mean, it does in that sort of in that sort of irritating sense. Yeah, the blue shell seeks out the first place player in the race and causes an explosion, which spins out all surrounding cars and it is what because everything is wrong with america honestly now that you lay it out it totally tracks but yeah okay to lock in that sort of thing yeah seeks out first player big explosion yeah yeah i watched a lot of it i mean i watched i watched other people play it and occasionally played it myself but only on super nes which was before the introduction of the blue shell in the the n64 version but yeah it, it basically if you're behind you can send it and it'll target whoever is in the lead at that point and make them spin out and provide an advantage to all the other players <laughs> very good next question is akiva and nathan to try and steal from henry Invented in 1817 by the French instrument maker Jean-Hilaire Aste, or Hallery, I think is how he signed his instruments, what brass instrument enjoyed a vogue in the 19th century, getting incorporated into works like Hector Berlioz's Symphonie Fantastique, but was largely supplanted by the tuba by the end of the 19th century? A successor to the serpent, distinguished by its use of keys rather than tone holes, it has a name derived from classical Greek words meaning serpent and key. Interesting. So I've seen a serpent, I think in a museum in Germany, mm. possibly. It, it's completely insane looking. It looks like a serpent. It's like a big giant S. But the Greek words for serpent, I want to say like Ophidios or something like that is, is a snake or a serpent. Yeah, Ophid- yeah. Ophidian is like snake-like. Yeah. But I'm trying to think about key or what the instrument might have been. Huh. <sighs> There's, I don't think this is it, but there's like the euphonium is like a, a, a smaller tuba. Yeah, but euphonious means like sweet yeah, sound. More of a sweet yeah. sound, yeah, it's not. Less snake derived. Less snake derived. I'm trying to think about instrument names. I'm assuming based on these first two questions that Henry enjoys tuba or plays tuba. <laughs> yeah, I would think tuba and math are the main Tuba, math, and Pokemon, I think, are where we're going with this. <laughs> this is way more interesting than my topic. Huh. Yeah, I don't know where, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think what key would be. It's like cl- clave, that's Latin, not Greek. Oh, yeah. Enclave is is under key. Like no, I mean, I think that, like, clavier. Clavier, yeah. The same thing. So, so no, but that, that's usually spelled with a K, which leads me to believe it's more Greek than Latin. Yeah. So, 
Ophidoclave. I don't, I don't think it's Ophidoclave. Ophidoclave. Yeah, we can make up words. Yeah. If it's good enough for Jean Hilaire Yeah. I mean, you want to say something like that? That's Ophidoclave. Yeah. Ophidoclave? Made, yeah. yeah. I feel good. Yeah. I, even if it's wrong, I feel like we made up a word today. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Let's say that. Okay. Okay. Hmm. What do you think, Henry? I think that was very, that, wow. That was very <laughs> impressive. <laughs> the instrument is an Ophiclide. Pretty close. O-P-I-C-L-E-I-D-E. Yeah. yeah, I feel like considering sort of that, like the clue, yeah, the clues were kind of asking you to put that together. I mean, you kind of satisfied, like you had the right roots, you had them in the right order. You maybe had one straight consonant in there, but I'm kind of leaning toward giving you credit for that. I support we'll accept that. partial credit. <laughs> okay, so, well, here, here's what I'll do. I'll give... You two credit, and I'll give Henry credit for a bonus for knowing the exact name. It's extremely fair. Okay. Cool. There's there's a video on YouTube of they did there's a rendition of Symphony Fantastic where they do the DSERA with Serpent and Off and it sounds real nice. That sounds like something I will watch as soon as this game is over. (laughs) Like playing a a, a saxophone with a tuba mouthpiece, though. So (laughs) that's um. (laughs) <laughs> something to be desired about it. I, I, I played trombone back in my instrument days, and my friend who played bassoon figured out that he could play trombone with his bassoon mouthpiece in the trombone, which sounded very strange, but kind of cool, and also was how he could march bassoon. So um, I'm, I'm sorry if we're digressing a bit, but I'm not sure if you're familiar with PDQ Bach. Of course. Um, yeah. So yeah, Peter Strickley, the guy behind it, composed some joke pieces for trombone, which is what you're describing. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, no, I, I, the part of the reason I, I tell people to always guess is that it forces them to do stuff like kind of try and fraud answers like that. And that's maybe the most impressive fraud I've seen in this entire podcast. So I do want to reward it. Yeah. We are pretty impressive frauds. That's really cool. <laughs> I'm going to put that on the resume. The best fraud in recreational maybe thinking. be the title of this episode. I'm not telling you how to do your job, but like, <laughs> a good name. I think I think there's a lot of question in this question. Is another candidate too? <laughs> we'll take it. All right, Henry and Nathan. Now to try and steal from Akiva. Currently in theaters, the 2022 computer animated film *Pause of Fury: The Legend of Hank*, about a dog aspiring to be a samurai in an anthropomorphized animal world modeled on feudal Japan, is somewhat surprisingly a credited remake of what 1970s movie? The director and co-star of the original film even reprises his role, sort of, by portraying a shogun. I saw the preview for this, and with my small children, I'm fairly sure I'm going to see this movie one day, probably when it is on a home service, because it, from the preview, I was going to say it doesn't look very good, but this question is maybe making me reconsider that. Could this be a, a Kurosawa movie? Is he is yeah. he that time, or am I am I way off? I think that that was what I was kind of thinking too. Metaing this slightly, the first question was detective sort of based, huh. but that could just be. I mean, yeah, going the wrong way. Let's see. I mean, if we do the, the Kurosawa route, we could go, you know, there was that one other adaptation of the Kurosawa movie. I forgot what it was called. Was it Seven Samurai or something? I don't. Know. Yeah. But I don't know if that was 1970s either. <laughs> yeah. It does 
which Kurosawa would be like a, someone aspiring to be a samurai era. This is something su- somewhat surprising, though. So, yeah, I don't know if this is. Oh wait, no, but repri- reprises reprises the role by returning shoguns. Okay, so this is sort of. Yeah. So whoever. Go ahead. Yeah. So I was saying, so whoever directed this is still performing. Right. I don't know if this is like still in a if it's based on like a uh, uh, feudal Japan, the original film, or if it's like some other thing where the director and co-star was like some other head honcho sort of thing. Let's see, I mean, Zootopia comes to mind, which is certainly <laughs> not the right era. No, um, Zootopia is a lot more new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> what, what would, would this have been, um, do you think that this was uh, an American film? I would think it probably was. It's well, short, sort of like playing a show then. It's also possible the first movie, the 70s movie, isn't Japanese-based. Yeah, that, that's sort of what I was... Yeah, that it's it's some other story that was sort of transposed to animals in Japan. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we got that's the, the sort of Lion King treatment, I guess. Huh, okay. What directors in the 1970s would we, are you familiar with? Because no. I, I, I <laughs> <laughs> not an area of my strength. Yeah, Kiva did a very good job picking this category. <laughs> In my defense, I don't think I picked this category. <laughs> Spielberg around in the nineteen seventies. I don't know if he co-starred in anything. Is this? Oh, and co-star, yeah. Was it so the co-star? I mean, let's see. I don't know if co-star means it would be like a romantic movie. I mean, that would be sort yeah. of amusing. But well, like Clint Eastwood directed and starred in and acted in things. That's it would be okay. like one of the. It would be like a western. Like there's a lot of overlaps with. Okay, I'm not. Well, <laughs> I can't name I'm, a 1970s yeah. western. Good, bad, and ugly was probably yeah. way before. Yeah, I, I don't think we're going to get there, but we need to come up with something because the rule dictates it. <laughs> Hi, Jimmy. <laughs> it's like I've played against Jimmy in Connections enough that I can say, Hi, Jimmy. <laughs> I'm reading his game this time. A fistful of dollars. Is that roughly then? I couldn't tell you. Sure. Let's end the misery. <laughs> So is that, is that what you're lucky? Yeah, a fistful of dollars. <laughs> Very logical. I mean, has connections to Japan, certainly, but that's 60s movie, not the 70s. No, that's not correct. Pass to Akiva. Okay, so we're looking for a 70s movie where the director was also the co-star, which is a fairly big thing. Not a lot of people did that. And he reprises his role sort of by portraying a shogun, which leads me to believe his role was of some fairly important leader, a person who was in charge. I mean, I'm trying to think of people who directed and acted at the same time. I don't think it has to be Japanese at all. I mean, like Warren Beatty, someone like that. I'm trying to think of something where he played a really important, like he was in something like Bullworth, but that was 90s. He directed like Heaven Can Wait and Reds in the 70s, but that's not, those aren't the right areas either. We're looking for actor directors, people who were doing both, who were directing themselves in movies. Boy. That is really hard. 
I don't know, let's, let's say Taxi Driver, even though it would be a very strange animated movie. It would, yes, but I believe the Taxi Driver remake was called Joker. Was <laughs> but, that uh, an animated movie? It probably should have been. <laughs> but yeah, so it's interesting because, of course, two famous Westerns, Fistful of Dollars and Magnificent Seven, are both based on samurai films from Japan. So it's interesting this kind of reverses the trend, sort of making a samurai film, but basing it on a Western. Now, the thing that I didn't put in the question that might have provided a big hint was that even though the main character is a dog, most of the other characters are cats. Putting a dog, you know, in charge of cats is essentially recreating the dynamic from a film in which a black man is placed in charge of white people. Yeah. Have you figured that out? Yeah. It's Blazing Saddles, isn't it? He conquered fear and he conquered hate. He turned our light into day. Or a blazing saddle. Or, okay. And no I forgot how the, uh, go, yeah. Well, yeah. It's great. Yeah. That's an outstanding question. Uh, yeah. cool. It also actually makes me really want to see Positive Fury much more than I did before. <laughs> yeah. Similarly, like my interest in it was basically zero, and learning that fact kind of raised it to a non zero level. <laughs> the question is is there an, a lot of anti dog racism in the movie? Perhaps not as explicitly as in the original. I would hope. Okay, Akiva and Henry to try and steal from Nathan. When a yo-yo is thrown, its spinning results from the conversion of what form of kinetic energy into rotational kinetic energy? Defined as the energy associated with the motion of an object's center of mass, this form of kinetic energy is proportional to the product of mass and the square of velocity. So, form, what form? I, I last physics class was like three years ago. I don't know. But if I can remember... If it's thrown, then it wouldn't be spinning. So it would be translated. I think translational kinetic energy is, that's the, the counterpart of rotational, if I recall correctly. And that, that sort of lines up with this form of because rotational is proportional to a product of moment of inertia and I'm, I'm sorry that I'm sorry about that Akiva. No, believe I, I, me you're saying things that I do not know so yeah I, I I think that this is translational kinetic energy if we're okay locking that in that is fine by me okay yeah translational kinetic energy yeah that's correct the total kinetic energy of the system is the sum of translational and rotational but the conversion from translational into rotational is what gives it that spin many a physics problem <laughs> involving <laughs> yo-yos yeah, like you said, I mean, the formulas are basically analogous in that like moment of inertia is the rotational analog to mass and angular velocity is the rotational analog of velocity. Sorry, my screen is freezing up, but well, I will say, okay, at the end of that round, heading into the final one, and the scores are Akiva has a nice lead, 29.0. There's a, a big battle for second place, but right now Henry is at 18.2 and Nathan at 13.1. The point, values, you are. <laughs> the point values will go up, so there's still an opportunity for anyone to play catch-up. I'm kind of vamping, though, because I'm waiting for my computer to unfreeze. Yeah, your camera is frozen. You are, you are definitely frozen. frozen. Yep. Hooray. Okay, yeah, okay. Vamping fulfilled. Yeah, but the scores are just, as I said, I believe. I'm, I'll recheck everything later. If I got off, I'll you know, make up for that. But I believe those are the scores as we head into the Super hard round. So the questions are now worth six points as a steal, five as a specialist, three as a bonus. And we'll begin with Akiva and Nathan to attempt to steal from Henry. 
In 2022, Ukrainian mathematician Marina Vyazovska became the second woman to receive the Fields Medal. She was honored for work in a specific subfield of mathematics best described by what two-word term? One of the most famous conjectures in this subfield, the 1611 Kepler conjecture, was finally proven by Thomas Callister Hales in 1998. Just to narrate for the audience at home, Nathan is thinking very hard. Part of math feels strange on on this math because Kepler is like laws of motion and like uh, orbital mechanics is Kepler's laws. And is Hales another astronomer? Is Hales? That's Hale, not Hales. In the comet, the Hale-Bob. I don't know if I would call orbital mechanics a subfield of mathematics, but I, I have an engineering background, not a math one. So when I hear Kepler, I think <laughs> orbital mechanics. <laughs> and my brain is continuing to just say the words orbital mechanics at me, which is not very helpful. <laughs> that is one more guess than I have. So I'm not going to make my brain say anything other than that. So let's go with orbital mechanics. <laughs> I support that choice. Decent guess, but not correct. Henry? I read the list of field medalist laureates recently. I remember that there was someone who narrowed the bounds for the twin primes problem, which was in number theory, which this is not. I remember that there was someone who did some work in graph theory, which I doubt that this is. Kepler, again, an astronomer. So a sort of physics-y thing. A two-word term that would be useful in a, a physics-y sort of situation I think this might be just differential equations. That's going to be my answer. Okay, yeah. So this was, I guess, something more maybe linked to geometry, although the original work in it would have involved sort of three-dimensional geometry and sort of how to pack things into lattice structures. By now, of course, we've got to eight-dimensional geometry. So Marina Vyazovska's work is actually in like R8 space, but basically determining sort of the most efficient arrangement of packing spherical objects. So it's called sphere packing. Got it. Okay. Hi, this is Future Yogesh with some additional information. The Kepler conjecture arose from a conversation between Kepler's friend Thomas Harriet and Sir Walter Raleigh, in which Sir Walter wondered about the best way to stack cannonballs. Gauss proved the conjecture for regular lattice arrangements, but not irregular arrangements, in 1831. The conjecture became a famous unsolved problem when it was included as part of Hilbert's 18th problem in 1900. In the 1950s, Laszlo Fehestot reduced the conjecture to a finite number of cases. At the time, there was not enough computing power to check all of these cases, but Tote's insight formed the basis for Hale's later proof. In 1990, Wu Yi Hisang announced a separate proof, but his methods were controversial and are not widely accepted. Although Hale's proof was first announced in 1998, it was non-surveyable and took years to validate. Hales and 21 collaborators finally develop a formal proof that can be verified by automated proof-checking software in 2015, and it was accepted for publication in 2017. All right. Henry and Nathan now to try and steal from Akiva. So since we've already had so many questions about the Mario franchise, it makes sense to talk about Samantha Mathis, who played Princess Daisy in the infamous 1993 Super Mario Brothers film. 
Ms. Mathis is the daughter of two-time Emmy nominee B.B. Besh, who played Dr. Carol Marcus in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. And Miss Besh was in turn the daughter of Gusti Huber, an Austrian actress who emigrated to the U.S. Although Ms. Huber lived until 1993, her last on-screen acting role was in 1964, and her last feature film role came in 1959, when, reprising her somewhat controversial casting on Broadway, she played a woman with what surname in a movie nominated for the Best Picture Oscar? Another one of those. There's a lot of question in this question. <laughs> I'm with the keeper for this one. Uh, no, this is no. Uh, oh, Nathan. Very, and This is yeah, us against Akiva. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Okay, sorry. Right, yeah. I was thrown off by the Mario thing. Of yeah. We were, okay, gotcha. Sorry about that. Marcus is somebody... So she... Stopped acting in 1964 with the last her last one. So she stopped acting after the 50s, basically. Yeah. And had been on Broadway. So she played a role in a film and on Broadway. Controversial casting on Broadway. So did she take a role that maybe was intended for somebody else? Or yeah, she's Austrian. It could be that the the role is someone that you would not expect an Austrian to be playing. Sure. Let's see. Is this? Oh wait. So okay. So she's I guess the the granddaughter of yeah. an Austrian. Okay. Austrian old movies. It's like the Sound of Music. So that certainly seems like something that might be nominated for yeah. best picture. I think that was probably nominated and i know it's on stage too i don't know which came first sure yeah i can't remember the name of Von trap is the family the family but like does maria have yeah does maria have <laughs> what is maria's last name like i can't remember maria's last name yeah i'm not sure if it's her either but <laughs> right right yeah I kind of do yeah. like Von Trapp as an answer. Yeah. Let's or, say, yeah, or, no. or, or, or if we stick the Julie Andrews route, we could uh, we could say Poppins. I don't know if that's best picture, but like... <laughs> yeah, I kind of like Von Trapp, just with the Austrian connection. Von Trapp works, but I'm, 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 I'm a bit lost with the somewhat controversial casting. Hmm. She immigrated from Austria in the... 40s could you be like that like let's see yeah that that would sort of so 1940s musicals then or or maybe just a play it could be a play also right i mean i don't know if like oklahoma was something around then i don't think that i don't remember if there there was a movie of that but i don't know if that would have been a controversial casting Oh, like uh, casting of somebody from Europe is like a very American. Maybe. I, I also don't remember yeah. the Oklahoma family yeah. last names. 19, let's see. Could this be, so Arthur Miller, I know that his place were like were the 1950s-ish, probably later a bit. I don't know if he had anything before then, but I don't know if that would be anything controversial. Like, was she in... Could she have been in Death of a Salesman? Could she have been mm-hmm. a Loman? Loman, a Loman. 
Yeah, I don't know what would make that controversial in terms of the casting. I don't know. Playwrights. <laughs> Again, I, I'm not sure. Let's see. And Woman is not a terrible guess. On Trap feels like it's in, not a terrible guess. No. <laughs> I'm not sure either of them is right, but <laughs> this is the super hard round and distinctly not our specialty. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if Salesman has been adapted for yeah. a film, though, because, like, notably, there's a lot of set work that goes on in that. Yeah. You want to go with Von Trap? Okay, with me. Sure. Let's lock in Von Trap. Yeah, that's a very good guess. And I'll explain why in a few moments, but I'll pass this to Akiva first. So we're looking for a Broadway play that was adapted into a movie in 1959. It was nominated for Best Picture. To me, a thing that would make casting an Austrian controversial around that time is probably if it was about something about World War II. So I think Von Trapp is not a bad guess, but my guess is that what made it controversial is that she was playing a Jewish character. So if I had to guess, this is probably the diary of Anne Frank. So, so the, surna- the surname would be, you're Frank. actually like Frank. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, Sound of Music was around that time. The stage musical was, I think, 5960 and the film 1965, which actually won the Best Picture Oscar. But yeah, I mean, it's certainly like Austria based and involves mm-hmm. World War II. And it has multiple characters who are members of the same family, which mm-hmm. the question is kind of pointing toward. So yeah, that was a very good guess. But Akiva's guess is even better because it's correct. She played that makes sense as soon as you said it. <laughs> yeah, she played Edith Frank, the mother of Anne Frank. A very strange story is that my mother was in Amsterdam in the 60s and decided to go to the Anne Frank Museum and met a guy who said, You kind of look like her. And it turned out it was her father who hung around the museum, which is an extremely weird story. Yeah, he, I mean, in addition to sort of, you know, running the museum, he apparently corresponded with quite a few young children and kind of played a mentorship role to many of them. Oh, yeah, uh, and edited the diary and was very instrumental in shaping her legacy. Mm-hmm. Right, were you saying something, Henry? Sorry, I, it was it was related to the sound of music. Never mind. Okay, but yeah, I mean, there are, with regard to, to Gusty Huber, there were questions that were raised, which will probably never be definitively answered about how chummy she was with the Nazi regime in Austria, which is what made that casting controversial. All right, Akiva and Henry now to try and steal from Nathan. The first game in the Mario Kart franchise, Super Mario Kart, was released in 1992. How many years was this after the founding of the Nintendo company? I'll give you a margin of five years either way. So this is always a trick question because it was founded as a card company, right? In like 1900 or something ridiculous, like 1910. I think it was in the 1800s even. Yeah, it's a, it's a, this is always the trick question people love to ask because it's like, what year were they founded? Like 1970? Like, no, it was like 1880 or something. So the question is, do we know the actual number? My answer is no. <laughs> we could just say 100. That's a nice round number. I think that is a very good number. Idea. Okay, let's do it. A hundred. All right. What do you think, Nathan? I also was going to say that this is, yeah, this is like the late, yeah, Nintendo was a card company, playing card company in, in the late 1800s. I don't know the exact year either. So given the margin of five years, I will say, if you said a hundred, 105 would be correct. So I will say 106. <laughs> right. Yeah, a very good guess, but 
Yeah, I mean, you all figured out kind of what the trick was there. Nintendo is far older than many people assume. Specifically, it was founded in 1889. So 100 is within a five-year margin. Yeah, I, I, would, uh, I would have said 100, but there was no point in saying 100. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no. per- perfectly defensible. Yes. And as a quick bonus for you. So Nintendo was originally founded to sell a type of playing cards used to play games like Koi Koi in Japan, Ghost Op in Korea, and Sakura in Hawaii, and known by what Japanese term? Oh, I have read this before. I don't think I'm going to remember the exact name. It's it's a gaming I feel like it's related to like some of the games like kachinko it's like it's close to pachinko so the term at least in japan there are other terms in korea and other places but in japan it's hanafuda uh, all right so akiva and nathan now to try and steal from henry bruce broughton's concerto for tuba and orchestra was written for what orchestral tuba player who played on more than 2,000 film soundtracks and is perhaps best known for performing the high register solo that serves as the shark's motif in Jaws? I saw an interview with this guy like two weeks yeah. ago. I have no idea why. I think because it was John Williams' 90th birthday. I think yes. But could I name him to you? Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. I want to say he also did at least some of the Close Encounters stuff. Yeah. The motif in that. Oh my God! What the hell is that guy? Again, literally watch him on yeah, YouTube. Yeah, I think he did a lot of the. Really did a lot of the John John Williams stuff. I did not see the interview, you know, that recently, but I think I've heard him referenced before. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think I'm going to be able to pick the name out of thin air, and we can pick a random name. But... Want to get, do you want to go common surname? Then it seems unlikely in this round that will be common surname. Um, let's say Herbert. Sure. <laughs> is that a common surname? I don't know. Um, yeah, Google yeah. players. Yeah, it's not Johnson, so it's more less common than that. <laughs> that Herbert. Is that what you're locking in? Sure. Yeah. All right. What do you think, Henry? Uh, <laughs> I can't remember this person's name either. I mean, to be fair, Johnson would have been a, a a fair response. There was a fairly well-known tuba player, Tommy Johnson, who played on an orchestra. I'm going to be kicking myself later. Well, I would feel terrible if it was Johnson. Yeah, but no, um, Johnson was earlier than this, if I recall correctly. Let's see. Okay, so it's an LA, LA based in around the 80s. I, I <laughs> man, this is kind of, uh, I, I can't remember. I, I'm, I'm just going to take a stab. Uh, Roger Bobo. Okay, well. I mean, from a strategic point of view, you know, if you know there's a 20th century tuba player named oh. Tommy Tommy Johnson, you probably should have just guessed Tommy Johnson. Was it Tommy Johnson? Because it is Tommy Johnson. Oh, yes. man. Oh, man. We both messed up. <laughs> Johnson Gambit declined. Yeah. I was very surprised because you were all like, it's definitely not Johnson. And in my head, I was like, oh, why no. are you so sure it's not? Oh, man. Oh, well. Uh, Yeah, Uh, yeah, I think his actual first name was John, but he was professionally went by Tommy Johnson. Yeah. Oh, well. (laughs) All right. Henry Henry and Nathan now to try and steal from Akiva. What woman whose admirers during her lifetime included Nathaniel Hawthorne, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Walt Whitman died in 1859 in a lunatic asylum just a few years after the publication of her magnum opus, The Philosophy of the Plays of Shakespeare Unfolded? 
In Contested Will, an analysis of various Shakespeare authorship theories, James Shapiro wrote of this woman's political analysis of Shakespeare's oeuvre, had she limited her argument to these points instead of conjoining it to an argument about how Shakespeare couldn't have written the plays, there is little doubt that instead of being dismissed as a crank and a madwoman, she would be hailed today as the precursor of the new historicists and the first to argue that the plays anticipated the political upheavals England experienced in the mid-17th century. Okay. Hmm. The story of dates is the same as sort of Sylvia Plath-ish, but like philosophy of the, like Feldjar yeah. is not is her magnum opus, and so let's see. Oh, this is mid eighteen hundreds philosopher. It's never a great sign when this is their magnum opus, and I've never heard of it. <laughs> Does not lead me towards confidence in getting this correct. <laughs> So just, yeah, just in case it wasn't clear from the, the way the question is worded, yeah. what I was getting at is that this is someone who promoted the idea that Shakespeare yeah. did not write did Shakespeare's not write, yeah. work. Right, yeah. 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 I feel like I've read that Wikipedia article about like who was actually Shakespeare if it wasn't an actual person, but right. that is does not Martin mean I... Or ben Johnson. No, it was Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, political analysis of Shakespeare's work. So was this person... Would there be any politicians maybe in 1859 or before 1859, I guess? Political analysis sort of leads me towards yeah. that. Some sort of like political theorist. Yeah. I, political theorists who were in the 1850s. <laughs> yeah. Her name was Tommy Johnson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. Fine, fine, fine. <laughs> Actually, all the questions from now on are about people named Johnson. I decided to go with the theme. I feel like a multiple choice test where the answer for every single one is C. <laughs> ben Johnson is one of the people they sometimes think wrote Shakespeare's plays. But again, that's yeah. true. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, I, 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 yeah, I, this is either going to be one of these, like, I've literally never heard of it, or more likely, oh, this is a person who I've definitely heard of, but not in this regards, which feels like a standard way that Yogesh's questions often go. <laughs> sure. So, um, like, 1850s-ish people, I think, like, suffragists. Yeah. Uh, so, I don't know, but that that's, um, that would be a, a bit early, but, like, there's still, there were still certainly some. This woman, given the people, I'd imagine yeah. this person would have to be American. Yeah. Emily Dickinson did not have this as her magnum opus. I'm fairly confident, maybe. I don't know. I can't I can't say anything about confidence now. Yeah. Uh, let's see. In the realm, yeah. I yes, this is anything? Can I just do Dickinson because we have sure. nothing else? Yeah. Yeah, let's lock in Dickinson. All right. Akiva? So I think this is a I think she, she's famous for having a fairly ironic last name in that she shares it with one of the most popular incorrect candidates for the identity of Shakespeare. I think this is Delia Bacon. Is that right? That's what you're locking in? Yeah. 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 I mean, that's kind of the, the, even though I don't believe there was any actual family connection, certainly a good way to remember it is that, although she did sort of have a collaborative theory, one of her main candidates was Francis Bacon and her own surname was Bacon. Coincidence? I will say, though, Contested Will is an awesome book, and I highly recommend it because it's not about like who wrote the works of William Shakespeare. It's like, why would anyone think that someone other than Shakespeare wrote the works? And yeah. so it's great reading. Yeah, I, I've read it, and I think I have a copy somewhere around here. 
But all right. So this next question for Kevin Henry to try and steal from Nathan. I use sort of a cheat to make it accessible, which is aesthetically displeasing to me, but we'll see how it plays. All right, Akiva and Henry, to steal from Nathan, what Yo-Yo Master, formerly a marketing and promotions coordinator for Duncan Toys, is credited with inventing freehand Yo-Yo Play, now classified as the 5A division in Yo-Yo competitions? And since I suspect you'll probably just go to the common surname well on this one, I will tell you his surname isn't Smith, Jones, or Johnson, but many sources do list it as one of the five or so most common U.S. surnames. Okay. Well, I can work with this. Hmm. Not the most common We're not going to get this off the yo-yo part. No, I can, I can say that. <laughs> well, what are other common surnames? I mean, five or so. Maybe I do call them Baker. I would think Jackson, maybe? That's a, that's a, that's another common surname. I like to go presidential with these things. Those are usually common. Yeah. Washington, Jackson. Highbrow. Maybe not Washington, but maybe something like that. Jackson's okay with me. Okay. Let's say the great yo-yo master, Jackson. A fair guess. What do you think, Nathan? This is Future Yogish. Just noting that what I should have said was, I'm sorry, it's not Mr. Jackson. I am for real. Yeah, personal guess on the surnames. So I... In, in my somewhat younger days, in 2005, I finished fourth place at the U.S. National Yo-Yo Contest in this division, and I know the person who invented it well. I was actually at the contest where he debuted it to the general public. It was really cool. It's still pretty cool. It's where you connect the yo-yo to a dice or a, a counterweight of some sort instead of tying it to your finger, and the person who invented it is Steve Brown. Okay, well, I can see that. Steve Brown, he's got to get a more exciting name than that. <laughs> like Tommy Johnson or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. At least Delia Bacon had something going for her with those. <laughs> All right. Okay. This next question will not reduce to guessing a last name, although it will probably reduce to guessing a first name. <laughs> okay. So Kiva and Nathan to try and steal from Henry. Two stories in the Sherlock Holmes canon, The Adventure of the Copper Beaches and The Adventure of the Solitary Cyclist, begin with Holmes being approached by a beautiful female client and climax with Holmes and Watson saving that woman from a distressing fate. That's not particularly unusual as Victorian literature goes, but what is mildly striking is that both of those characters happen to share what first name. Coincidentally, it is also the name of a Pokemon video game set to be released on November 18th of this year and kick off the ninth generation of Pokemon video games. Like all major installments in the Pokemon video game franchise, this game is part of a pair that will be released simultaneously, but I don't give a damn about the other game in that pair. This is, I think it's a color pair. I have seen people who are excited about this series coming out. Well, if it's a color... I don't give a damn. To me, like that's... Scarlet. So it's Scarlet. So what's the so it would be the companion to I think the hint is that it's not Scarlet, right? So what would be the pair? That would be the pair. It's usually like blue, red is like the first one. So if it's scarlet, it would probably be a blue. What would be a blue? Is that a woman's name? No, I mean it wouldn't be blue. It would be like Scarlet is a fancier red. So what is a fancier blue? That would be a be a woman's name. We've done Sapphire already, so I don't think it's Sapphire again. <laughs> Aqua wouldn't be it. Or I'm trying to think of female names that live in that. Indigo. In 
Yeah, not really a first name. Not a first name. It has not devolved to picking a first name. It's it's converged to picking a color. Yeah, it's totally different. <laughs> totally different. And that color is Johnson. <laughs> Cerulean or are we are thinking ourselves and it is Scarlet because that is a I mean we could just say Scarlet. That would be fine. Otherwise, right. I, feel like we're, I feel like we're guessing at one. I feel fairly comfortable with Scarlet. I think Scarlet is the other half of the pair. Probably. But we also said it's probably not Johnson, and it was Johnson, so maybe we should just say Scarlet. Scarlet. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Let's, let's go Scarlet. Yeah. I mean, I, I see your logic there. Of course, if that were the answer, then it would basically, the question would basically reduce to what name is associated with I don't give a damn, yeah. which is way too easy a question for this round. Yeah, that's why I thought it was the other half of the pair, but... <laughs> All right, what do you think, Henry? Not making this into a, a coasting coin for me. Um, <laughs> this is Violet. Yeah, the games are Pokemon Scarlet and Pokemon Violet. And yeah, you were right. I was trying to steer you away from Scarlet toward the other yeah. one. Yeah. All right. Now, the penultimate question of the game, I think, let me just look at the scores. Uh, yeah, I think, I think the order of finish is mostly set at this point, but we're all playing for pride. So here's the penultimate question for Henry and Nathan to attempt to steal from Akiva. Although Linda Day George was the only woman credited as a cast member in Mission Impossible's seventh and final season of its original run, for reasons that may or may not be related to her limitations as a thespian, in that season's best episode, The Question, her character is replaced without much explanation by an IMF agent named Andrea. I actually rewatched the episode yesterday to verify whether it was Andrea or Andrea, and surprisingly, it is in fact a mixture of those two, uh, which I never heard before, Andrea. But anyway, who portrays that character, Andrea, known for her work on Broadway, where she was the original Corey in Barefoot in the Park and played Dr. Livingston in Agnes of God and Maggie the Cat in an acclaimed 1975 revival of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. She's also had TV roles as Aunt Frida on Evening Shade and Aunt Mimi on Treme, and can currently be seen in Russian Doll as Nadia's mentor slash adoptive mother. I'm not much of a Mission Impossible fan. I can... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just sort of the framing one. Right, 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 right. right. Yeah, I don't... Russian Doll, I... I'd be better off with this question if I had seen any of these TV shows. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> Flamed Revival. Oh, that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, Another one? No. I think our strategy here, even though I think the game is fairly fixed, is to guess something quickly and let Akiva not think about it for as long. <laughs> okay. Smith hasn't come up yet. Want to do that? Yes. <laughs> Smith it is. Good strategy, but unfortunately not the correct answer. Akiva? So this is currently fairly embarrassing for me. The 1975 revival of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof was directed by my former boss at the Shakespeare Theater in Washington, Michael Kahn. And I worked with this actress on a subsequent production of Shaw's Mrs. Warren's Profession. And I know that her first name is Elizabeth. And I'm currently trying to think about what her last name is. <laughs> So I, she is everything you would hope for. She is brassy and ridiculous and has one of the great voices. She has a train of pugs that follow her around everywhere, breathing heavily. And her name is, this would be a very embarrassing way to end the show. <laughs> already had one, so. Um, oh man. I wonder if I could get this at a time that was less late at night. Huh. 
this is yeah, this is deeply embarrassing to me on every level. So some have indicated that the answer quickly strategy seems to be working. Yes, <laughs> working like a charm. <laughs> I'm just going to go through the alphabet in my head. I mean, I can do it out loud if you want. Sure. I'm guessing you won't be sending this link to her when it goes live. I don't think she listens to a lot of podcasts, but I may be wrong. Yeah. Anything? Well, how long do I have? Uh, I mean, well, so technically, yeah, technically there's no time limits, although I do want to kind of respect their strategy of passing to you by like not giving you that much more time than they had. Okay. Yeah, no, that's fair. Oh, boy. I don't know. Let's give it, a, I'll say two more minutes. Two more minutes. That seems Is like that... endless airtime. <laughs> yeah. I any, any, anything silent gets cut out. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. That's probably good. Um, this is just like watching me swing in the wind. Uh, I can, I can picture her. I know the fairly prominent American writer she was briefly married to. <laughs> you, you know, a lot of details. Again, I have literally met this woman and interacted with her. Uh, she was like the premier interpreter of Tennessee Williams towards the end of his life. Sometimes they would call her Liz Elizabeth. One minute. Boy. Yeah, I should probably just end my shame there. Okay. You want to just say something random then? Warren. Okay. Yeah. If you had, when you said you were starting alphabetically, I thought that it might be a short journey for you because her name, or at least her professional surname does start with A, Elizabeth Ashley. Yeah. Miss Ashley, that's correct, and I missed it, and I apologize to anyone affiliated with that theater that I may have missed. Hi, a quick note from Future Yogesh. Although that Cat on a Hot Tin Roof revival was part of the 1975 Tony season, it did in fact premiere in September 1974. Yeah, I had no idea that Nathan knew Steve Brown. I had no idea that you knew Elizabeth Ashley. They're all just sort well, of... Not well enough, apparently. <laughs> yeah, the, the yo-yo world is fairly small. So we tend to know each other. The I mean, theater world is slightly larger. But... Slightly larger, yeah. And there's, there's 13, I think it is right now, National Masters. You mm. mentioned Steve and, mm. I'm, and me. And so, <laughs> like, so, among others, there's a, but it's a fairly finite space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People have been using kind of that strategy of like locking in quickly at the beginning of the podcast, even though there's yeah. never been anything in the rules that says that the second person has to answer right away after. Yeah, true. <laughs> I've been playing too much pop solos, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's a Mimir strategy, certainly. Yeah. All right. One more question to finish out the game. Giva and Henry to attempt to steal from Nathan. Dubbed by one chronicler, the world's first celebrity female bartender, pioneering mixologist Ada Coley Coleman is credited with inventing the hanky-panky cocktail while tending the American bar at what world-famous luxury hotel? We got Waldorf Astoria. We got Ritz-Carlton. World-famous luxury hotels. I have not stayed at this one, I can imagine. Any ideas of people? I mean, it would have to be, it would have to be a place that's sort of like a one-off. There's a lot of Ritz-Carlton's. Could be something like the Waldorf Astoria. American bar, could it be somewhere that's not in America? Could it be in France or some, I don't know. It could, like at the, the Georges Sank. Yeah, maybe. If it's world famous, it can be anywhere in the world. That's true. France is part of the world, but there are other places in the world too. Probably not Antarctica, no. probably. You know of. Well, we <laughs> could say the Georges Sank. That's a fairly fam world famous luxury hotel. Okay, let's go with that. Okay.
All right. What do you think, Nathan? On the right track with it is not the American bar is not in in America. And I'm really hoping I remember this correctly because my old boss was a huge fan of the American bar and it is in London. And I am fairly sure this is at the Savoy. Yeah, so the Savoy was founded by Richard Doyley Cart using the money from the Gilbert and Sullivan Productions, which are now performed by companies called Savoyards. He actually employed, I think in episode 12, I mentioned he employed Cesar Ritz and Auguste Escoffier and then dismissed them for alleged misconduct, leading Ritz to found the Ritz near the Savoy in the hope of stealing customers away from it. But yeah, the Savoy is correct. Thank you, Kenan, who used to go there very often when he was in London on business and then would tell us about it. <laughs> All right. So that, that wasn't quite enough to lift you ahead of Henry, but a good finish there. The final scores are Nathan 23.1, Henry 29.2, Akiva 45.0. Nice. Well done. And we're and finishing off. If I remembered a person I have literally met several times, I would have done even better. <laughs> well, if you ever see her again, tell her I really enjoyed that Mission Impossible episode. And her performance in it. She's great. She's amazing, but apparently not memorable. <laughs> and it really, I was surprised to learn she was still acting, even, you know, because the newest season of Russian Doll came out in this year. Like, yeah, she's still still active. Very admirable. All right. So Natasha uh, Leone is a good comparison for her. I also, perhaps, perhaps she could have resolved a mystery because when I went to look up how her character on Evening Shade was spelled, I discovered on the same IMDb page, it's listed three different ways. <laughs> once in the title of an episode, once in the description, and then once as her character name, it's spelled Frida, F-R-I-E-D-A, F-R-E-D-A, and F-R-E-I-D-A. So who knows? But all right, so we'll just finish with a final statement. Again, it can be about the game, about the world at large, about any combination of those things in any proportion, as long as it's not too long or offensive, whatever you say, will be kept in and we'll go in reverse order of placement. So Akiva can go first. I would just like to apologize to National Treasure Elizabeth Ashley for forgetting her last name. I always found her to be delightful. She was very good in Mrs. Warren's profession which is also an excellent play. It's about a woman who used to be a prostitute and has joined polite society. But anyway, sorry, Liz Ashley, you're great. I hope your dogs are doing well. My apologies. All right, Henry? I guess I can say thanks for hosting and everyone else for playing along. I've got a TV recital coming up in the near future. I can post it on my YouTube if you look me up and I will not be playing any notes premiered by Tommy Johnson, so. I guess apologies to him too. I'm sorry, Tommy Johnson. All right, Nathan. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for hosting, Yogesh. Good game, Henry and Akiva. I wish I had not picked Mario, given Henry's also clear expertise in said subject. Shout out to my OQL and COQL teams, Haunted Bauhaus of Pain. And we are currently going with Magic Wi-Fi Closet in COQL. We change names every year. <laughs> going with, with Jenna, who's on this show recently, and Jenna and Mike Sell. And so I'm going to plug anything. It is an election year, and it is a fairly important election year. So if you are not registered to vote, you should register to vote. And if you are registered to vote, you should know where and when to vote. You're here. All right. Yeah. So this is the next month or so will probably be like the climax of my MBA studies. And then after that, I'll have, so I may not get to this quite like within the next few weeks, but certainly it won't be like a six, six month or it'll probably be closer to like two months. Thank you. We finished basically almost exactly on time. It's almost yeah. exactly three hours. Yeah. So as promised, yeah. this has been episode two of season three of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shroud. Thank you all for listening. Hi, everything after this point is just chatter, but you can listen to it if you want.
I have the uh, I have the answer to your last question of the soccer podcast sitting behind me in frame. <laughs> oh, what Stanford Bridge? Yeah, I'm I'm a Chelsea fan, so I knew that one right away. Though I will admit that I always thought that the stadium was called Stanford Bridge because the Battle of Stanford Bridge was fought roughly in the same location. And it's actually really nowhere. That. Yeah, nowhere. So close. I, I, I still learned something about a fact that I knew completely cold from that one, which was which was really entertaining. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's again one of the things I'm hoping for. Again, the questions are always going to be hard, but hopefully yeah. people learn learn interesting things from them. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I, I thought this was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah. There goes. All right. Let's see if I have a picture of Steve Brown of me of, of me and Steve Brown anywhere around here. <laughs> Yeah, that was, I gave Yogesh the option of doing yo-yo because I'm quite into yo-yo and I thought that would be interesting, though I know the trivia canon for yo-yo is a not non-existent, maybe Donald Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Pedro Flores, Donald maybe Duncan. Maybe Pedro but... Flores is popular. Yeah, Pedro Flores is in the Asian American history on <laughs> Learned League, the mini league last year. That was one where it was like, who invented the yo-yo? I know this one. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I really enjoy those sort of off the, I mean, I know you gave yeah. me options, but I was like, yeah, the yeah. other one you gave me is a perfectly fine category, but the, the yeah. more kind of off the wall ones make yeah. me think like, yeah. I can learn something from researching this. Yeah, so the, I learned about yo-yos today. The, the, yeah. the 5A is like one of these, so it's, it's a yo-yo, but it's connected to a, a small weight instead of tying it to your finger as you would normally. Huh. So do you, how do you like, throw, do you? You see, you kind of hold it like this. Hmm. Oh, and, okay. Yeah, not in frame at all. But. <laughs> this is not how I anticipated this podcast ending, but I am glad it is. How it <laughs> it not work quite as well in an, in an audio medium, but right. Yes. <laughs> is, is there like some sort of uh, uh, yo-yoing like notation, like uh, or there? So there's not. Is this? There was a friend, a guy I know, a friend of mine, tried to come up with with a yo-yo notation back in like around 2000 or so and he put a lot of thought into it it's kind of cool it's about like where your position of your hands and the yo-yo is and 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 tried to like script it all out but at the time there were a lot less yo-yo tricks in the year 2000 than there are today and and one of the the things is it was all about so it's all about tricks where you know the yo-yo is on the string so it's like where is your hand where is the yo-yo where's the string so like doubled on is different and then he had a, the, the postscript of his book had a thing about like, there's a few random weird tricks that I can't transcribe in this system. And one of the ones is this weird wacky trick that has what he called a string to string hit. So you see here, this formation, the string intersects with the string. Mm. And within about two months of him releasing the book, every trick had a string on string formation. <laughs> so his notation was obsolete almost as it came into being. <laughs> That could still be like a hard clue for like a quiz bowl toss up, like that yeah. as a notation for blow. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that was where, that was where it went. I, I have a friend who was a math major who at one point was trying to do some sort of graph theory with yo-yo trick positions. I don't know if he ever got anywhere, if it was just like a project he did. I just, I just was finishing up a, an internship a couple of weeks ago where we were doing some graph theory, like talking about like separating like uh, different components of graphs in a cycle I'm, I'm just trying to think i don't know that, that like I, I guess i can look into the yo-yo and graph theory that's that's yeah cool. it's, it's weird because it's like one of those things where it's like you start with 
generally it's fixed to your hand, it's fixed to the string, and then go. <laughs> and there's right. a lot you can do in the middle. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny that I will I'll have to I'll, it's probably late now. I'll ping Steve tomorrow and tell him he was an answer to a trivia question. <laughs> well, I'm not going to be calling Elizabeth Ask, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I couldn't bear the shame. Yeah, I had a nice a nice run of, I think, a few episodes ago. Yeah, with like Louisa Thomas, yeah, getting people who are asked about. I mean, though, yeah, it's always a coincidence. I don't know. I don't know that I have a connection to those people. I guess in the case of Steve Brown, though, it is, as you said, more likely because it's such a yeah. small world. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the trick there to knowing that I knew him would have been to Google me. That I probably know Steve. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to just Googling Steve Brown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because yeah, if, if you look at me, you're like, oh, because I if you search me, yo-yo stuff tends to populate. <laughs> hmm. uh, as you might imagine by people who have yo-yo videos on YouTube and somewhat distinctively spelled names. <laughs> so, yeah, that would have been the trick to know that I know him is that all the yo-yo stuff pops up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I generally don't do, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't search yeah. people beforehand. Um, yeah. I, I'm, yeah, like, I mean, like I said, it's just, it's a, I mean, Akiva's category was literally theater. So I had absolutely no way of knowing, you know, um, but I just, yeah, I don't remember what the inspiration for that question was, but I just was kind of like, I'd been wanting to ask a question about her for a while, and I was like, you know, theater, that's, yeah. that fits. What were your what were your, cat- what were your categories? Like, uh, was it? What were your categories? I mean, it was it was largely theater and Shakespeare in particular. Yeah, I figured there was a Shakespeare theater. Was it was there like a plays adapted to movies one? Specifically, specifically but I think I think it's probably more driven by what Yogesh is interested in. But yeah, anything that starts in theater, I can probably figure out pretty well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you went the route of you know big overarching categories like theater, film, yeah. literature. Which I tell people, I mean, I tell people in general that's maybe not the best strategy for this podcast. But people who've done it often do very well. Like Aaron Lichtig did something similar and won yeah. his episode. And, yeah, for uh, this game. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that actually, if, if it's okay to suggest, like it might be, like I, I I selected math as a category, but like had I realized, I think that like it had there been like a note saying like specific categories are your friend or something like that, I mm-hmm. feel like that might have right. been a a bit more um I I don't know. I, mean, I kind I, of I enjoyed the questions I got. Yeah. yeah. Specific categories are your friend, unless one of your opponents also is very good at that specific category. <laughs> right. That's kind of the problem with giving that advice is that I'm not sure it actually works. Okay. Yeah. You would think in theory it should, but it often happens two things. One is that, yeah, someone else there happens to have the same interest in that narrow category. And yeah, the other is that like the narrower you go, the more likely it is that I'll have to do something oblique, to connect to it, yeah. uh, you know, sure, like. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's the thing. Like, in theory, I kind of think that's how it should work. But I mean, in practice, you know, Dan Cohen did really well with broad categories. Aaron Lichtig won with broad categories. Now, Akiva. Right. So I, I have a hard time knowing for certain that that actually is the best strategy. Yeah. I was sure. I was suspicious that I, I did look up you two on, on Learned League just to get a sense of who I would be playing. And I saw your flag, Henry, had a Pokemon on it. And I was fairly confident at that point that Pokemon was going to be one of the categories. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that'll happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I don't think I, yeah. one question, I assume you get zero on that. <laughs> uh, yeah, although I did markedly poorly on the Pogo one, so <laughs> whatever. Yeah, there was a, a question once about like the the spider, the thing you put on like vinyl records, and someone actually had that on their flag. Uh, it was like <laughs> the most like uh, obscure connection between a flag and a question I see. <laughs> Gentlemen, it is late here on the East Coast, so I must say good night. Yeah. It was a pleasure meeting you, playing with you. Thanks for the questions. Yeah. Yeah. What's your giant what's your giant check behind you for? That that was one in New Orleans a few, I guess 2018 from Challenge Entertainment. It's a representation. We actually I mean we did in fact get yeah. twenty thousand dollars, but the check was just a representation of that. No, you can't cash it. That would be impossible. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did wonder if it was, but probably there's no like lines on it. Yeah, you need like those little. Yeah. Deposit only. You know, it's, yeah. it's just forced perspective, really. Yeah. It's really in the foreground. Because if so, I'm impressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An ATM especially would be difficult to cash it out. Yes. <laughs> so, sorry, what did he say? Oh, I was just asking if you took it on an airplane because that would be very impressive. I did actually. I think three times I've taken a giant check on an airplane. Uh, yeah, a couple times I checked it. Once I did, at least I didn't. I knew it couldn't. We wouldn't go in my seat, but I. I know there's a closet on the the plane that for like you know like suits and stuff like that. And the flight attendant was actually like, he really didn't seem to think it would fit there. But I was like, let me just try, and it did fit. So. Yeah, we, we gave out we gave out large checks at a yo-yo contest that I ran one time. One or two times and i think the people who won them also had hilarious times trying to st- they're, they're a little bit smaller i think but had hilarious times trying to stuff them in the overhead compartment <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no they, i think i think actually one of my teammates took a video of like the back from from the plane took a video of the baggage handlers putting the check into baggage like they aren't just loading it down <laughs> and had like a conveyor belt in it yeah i gonna say uh, the the theater, the theater one, it was probably a number of episodes ago, you, there was the one on Zoot Suit hmm. that I think went dead that I knew would not be on this one because you had asked it previous, <laughs> previously, but it was, it was one of those ones where it's like a theater question that I would have instantly, instantly got because my dad was the first, directed the first high school production what? of Zoot Suit. <laughs> oh, that's that's interesting. Yeah, it's a weird. It's it's one where they did not give Louis Valdez had not given the had never sold the rights to it. Like he mm-hmm. he personally retained the rights to to Zoot Suit. He didn't go to, through a publishing company or anything, and very very rarely gave them out. And my dad, when he was teaching at this school that was like fairly Latino population, and you know not not specifically at the time well known for drama at all but he was trying to do a show that would appeal to the the parts of the student body that tended to not be as interested in theater <laughs> and through like he knew somebody who knew somebody who worked for louis valdez and wrote a letter explaining what he was doing and why he wanted to do it and got a call a few months later like mr valdez wants to talk to you and wound up getting the rights to it and it was one of those like and he was talking to some people after, and one guy just looked at him and went, how the hell did you get the rights to Zoot Suit? 
That's a really good story. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about writing these really specific questions yeah. is that like no other podcast really goes into that much depth. And, yeah. you know, you think that you're maybe losing an audience when you do that. But I, I feel like, you know, on the one hand, you know, the audience that I get will kind of follow those kind of stories. And also you find just those really interesting connections to people, you know, the more sort of specific you go, the more there are ways that they just kind of touch people, you know, t- have touch points with people's lives that yeah. are unexpected. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I said, I, I know the American bar specifically because my old boss used to go there all the time <laughs> and we talk about it. Yeah, that was it. I came across that fact, actually, while, when writing my first Pop Solos Friendly, about, and I was mm-hmm. like, that's, yeah, like, I don't know about celebrity bartenders. That's not a category that comes up. But certainly within that category, it seems like the first really famous woman to be a celebrity bartender yeah. should be famous, you know, at least notable. 